Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 19th, 2017. It is a Wednesday. Wednesday means what? Wednesday means interview day. We have someone on the air today you have heard before, but never in an interview. He's called in a lot, and he's sent a lot of emails in to contribute to the show in the past. You know him as Pat the Leo. Today you will know him as Pat Watson, but I'll tell you, it's not his real name. Why? Because he's actively serving a law enforcement professional that has some opinions that don't quite coincide with what the state would have you believe. So therefore, he is uh, writing and and, uh, and doing public appearances under a pen name to protect himself, which I think is a good thing. Uh, we're going to say that uh, I just wanted to kind of tell you about who, who Pat is. Uh, Pat has served an active duty military member in the Coast Guard for over eight years, completing several overseas deployments for missions including anti-piracy off the coast of Somalia, counter-narcotics patrols in the Caribbean and Pacific theaters, as well as domestic Coast Guard deployments. He is currently a local law enforcement officer in Florida and is constantly training and learning new skill sets to bring his profession and use for on- and off-duty survival. Randy has decided to take a step toward income freedom and is in the beginning stages of building his website and a community of preparedness-minded individuals. The topics he, write about, he writes about and, uh, and teaches includes tools, tactics, leadership, suggested reading, tactical lockpicking, and more related to taking lessons learned from the military and law enforcement and utilizing them in the said fields in your, in your personal lifestyle. As a TSP listener since be, the, be, the beginning struggle as an anarchist in two government jobs, taking what he has learned to better the law enforcement and military culture and inform citizens about how their government operates and what they can learn from it. In other words, we've gotten to his head and he's had to deal with the concept of voluntarism and anarchism and the moral component that coercion and force used against someone not harming anybody else is wrong. It's a tough place to be, and I think it brings a unique perspective. We'll talk to Randy about all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let us hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day... New England Defensive Training. They provide NRA certified instruction and training in self-defense in and around Maine. Go to NewEnglandDefense.com to learn more. Again, New England Defense Training and TSP Business Directory. Remember, you can always find members of this audience to do business with at TSPBiz.com. And you can list your business there for as little as $5 every six months. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Uh, lots of interesting stuff going on in the year 1987, but my decision over which one to read was kind of easy because like most Americans who were alive at the time, I remember it well. 
I think you'll know it as soon as I say it. Anyways, Alex Strug has two for us today, South Palm, and has one. We have Saving Baby Jessica, contributed by Alex Shrug. And if you don't know what that's about, when I start telling the story, you might remember it, or you just weren't around yet or old enough to know what was going on. Uh, a single European act is passed, which kind of leads to the EU. And Saving Haiti and Then the World, contributed by Alex Strug. Notable births this year. Uh, Elizabeth Smart, age 14, she was the girl that was kidnapped in her Utah home and rescued nine months later. Uh, Bruce Irvin, the only person ever ejected from a Super Bowl game, or other only player, I should say. Tim Tebow, a quarterback famous for kneeling in prayer during a game. He is now a minor league outfielder for the Mets organization. i got to stop there a second. There's a whole bunch of butthurt people out there of the Christian faith that, that think Tebow uh, was treated unfairly. By the press, a little bit, maybe. By the NFL, not at all. Um, if you take a look at a football Sunday, you will see signs of the cross, gender reflecting, kneeling, praising God from players left and right. Tim Tebow went late in the draft because he was a shitty quarterback. Tim Tebow ended up traded from the Broncos to the Jets because he was a shitty quarterback. And Tim Tebow ended up out of the NFL because, you guessed it, he was a shitty quarterback. Didn't have nothing to do with him being Christian or outspoken views of things like that. But I still see it on Facebook years later. Well, it wasn't fair what they did to Tim Tebow. The problem is that people that don't know anything about the NFL, they think that, that winning the Heisman equals like Super Bowl-level quarterback. The reality is most players that win the Heisman don't make it five years in the NFL. It's a very poor indicator of whether or not a person will be successful in the NFL because it has a lot to do with what players do on the field, and it has a lot to do with what players do off the field as well, which that might make them a good person, but it doesn't make them a good quarterback or running back or, or whatever. So th that's fundamental reality. There's only been, I think, a handful of quarterbacks that won the Heisman And by the way, people other than quarterbacks win the Heisman. It's not usually, or it's not always a quarterback. Uh, but I think the last quarterback that won the Heisman that played in the NFL might have been Roger, or played in a Super Bowl might have been Roger Staubach. I don't think Montana won the, the Heisman, by the way. But I could be wrong about that. But it's not something that you usually see. Heisman Trophy quarterback becoming Super Bowl quarterback. Or even successful NFL quarterback. Uh, the last quarterback to play in a playoff game that won the Heisman was Tim Tebow. That that should tell you something. Just for you people that are still butthurt over this. Okay. Um, this year in film, we had Three Men and a Baby, Good Morning Vietnam, and The Secret of My Success, Lethal Weapon, and Fatal Attraction. This year in TV, Star Trek, The Next Generation premieres. The treasurer of Pennsylvania blows his brains out on TV. Robert Bud Dwyer is convicted of accepting a bribe. In fact, he was framed, but it's too late now. TV evangelist Jim Baker resigns from the PTL club after sex and financial scandals. He did not deserve a 45-year sentence when violent, murdering rapists were getting 11. He eventually served five. Uh, a little thing on that. When, when these big-name people get taken down by law enforcement, they always end up with these giant sentences that they never serve. Uh, because nobody pays attention to the, the, the commutation of the sentence or something like that. Everybody pays attention to the headlines while it's going on. It's all, it's all the, the state threatening you, using somebody well-known to threaten you that we could get you to look what we could do to you. Anyway, also this year on TV, Max Headroom, which failed, Married with Children that became a success, The Tracy Ullman Show, which includes the comedy short that will become The Simpsons. This year in music, I Want to Dance with Somebody from Whitney Houston. Um, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Askley. That is the famous Rick Roll song. If you don't know what that is, Google Rick Roll. Who's That Girl from Madonna? Bad from Michael Jackson that will become fat from Weird Al Yankovic. 
And Aretha Franklin is the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This year in video game Street Fighter is released by Capcom. This is the first in the series. Alex Shrugged, our own Alex Shrugged, programs sidearms for the IBM PC. It features full screen scrolling, the first for the PC. I'm also working on Tiger Road, he says, this time. Anyway, the IBM PS2 is launched with VGA graphics, and AdLib sound cards become the audio standard. In other news, it's Black Monday. The stock market loses 22% of its value. President Reagan will do nothing, and the market will recover. This was one of the first times I really learned how the stock market worked. When the market crashed and I asked my dad about it, he said, does it matter? And all the opportunity to buy everything's already gone. This was like the day they were reporting it on the news as being awful. He said, it's already bought. It's already bought in the morning. It's going to bounce right back. All the good stocks are going to come back tomorrow, but you'll never be able to buy them. I'll never be able to buy them. And remember, this is before E-Trade and stuff like that. We had to call a broker to put an order in. And he was right, and it came right back, and yeah, I realized the, the, the game that was going on. The FCC revokes the Equal Time Fairness Doctrine. Rush Limbaugh will save AM radio the next year because stations won't be forced to balance his opinion with opposing views. Uh, I think the Fairness Doctrine was socialism at its worst, by the way. Uh, that was basically that. If a radio station or TV station had somebody on with an opinion of one thing, if they gave them a half-hour show, there had to be a half-hour of equal time presenting the other view. Yeah, seriously. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear, tear down that wall. Reagan will, from, will, will say this in his speech at the Berlin Wall, June 12, 1987. Maglite introduces this year the two AAA mini flashlight. They are targeting medical and industrial applications. And Masada Yu publishes book, The Semi-Automatic Pistol and Police Service and Self-Defense. I'm going to read for you Saving Baby Jessica, because I know if you were old enough to know what was going on in 1987, you'll remember this, because it was nonstop coverage uh, of this event when this was going on. At 18 months old, Jessica McClure toddles out of her Midland, Texas home. Somehow she comes across an abandoned well, an 8-inch wide pipe. She falls 22 feet until her body is wedged in solid. CNN goes wall-to-wall -wall in its coverage. The country is gripped by this drama. The, national solution, the natural solution is to drill a hole parallel to the pipe, but it would take days to dig that deep, and the friction heat from drilling the well could cook baby Jessica. Instead, they use water jet drilling. It is fast and keeps the temperature low. When the drillers get deep enough, they dig a hole perpendicular to the well casing and break it open. Her foot is visible. The rescuer reaches in and pulls her through. Baby Jessica is saved. She will lose a toe due to gangrene. Years later, she is full-grown and married. She will be asked if the incident traumatized her, but apparently not. She will have no recollection of it happening at all. But America still remembers. My take by Alice Shrugged. Just so you know, you should never abandon a well with having a plan to plug it. Just dumping dirt into it isn't going to cut it. Ask for advice from a local soils engineer. Every situation is different. I once had a job representing a soils engineer in the field. One day, to our surprise, we uncovered a cistern 20 feet deep. Earth was piled up everywhere, and I thought this would be a great place for dirt bike riding. Kids playing on the site might be killed. Kids are not supposed to play on construction sites, but we are not fools. It was late in the day, so we parked a loader next to the hole and lowered the bucket over it. It wasn't perfect, but I felt I could look a parent in the eye and say we did our part to keep the kids safe. Nowadays, if I said to keep kids playing at a construction site, I run them off. It's not my job, but it really is. I'm not trying to kill their fun. I want them to live long enough to have even more fun. Extra, at 10 years old, I almost drowned while farming. I was helping my cousins plant watercress, as helpful as a 10-year-old can be, and I was wearing wading boots. I fell into an unseen hole. My boots were filled with water and trapped me. I, yell, I let out a yelp. 
Luckily, I was tall enough that my nose cleared the surface of the water and my cousins pulled me out. Farming can be dangerous, too. Indeed, farming can be dangerous. It's one of the more dangerous occupations out there, uh, quite true. What I remember about this is days of coverage and the whole nation holding its breath and, and you know hoping to save this one little girl. And I also remember kind of waking up to a reality, thinking, I hope this little girl gets saved. But me sitting around paying attention to it all day long and doing nothing else doesn't really impact that. I'm not one of her rescuers. I'm not anywhere near Texas. I'm in the middle of central Pennsylvania. There's nothing I can do here, and the people around me are behaving like this is the most important thing in the world. Does this make me heartless? Years later, I can look back and say, it didn't make me heartless. It made me a pragmatist. Thousands of people around the world die every day. But we take an interest in the ones that the media draws out to us that make a good story. You know? Had this little girl not been a cute, pretty little blonde girl and had her her situation have been something different, like simply being kidnapped like Elizabeth Smart, but didn't have the ring to it that that story did, we would have never known about her plight. And whether she lived or died, we would have never heard. And America would have never cared. Because we can only care about so many people and so many things at one time. And the media uses that fact to make us dance the dance. That doesn't mean that we don't care when a little girl falls down a well, but it also means there are other things going on at the same time. And unless we're in a situation where we can do something about it, thinking about it doesn't really change anything. And that's what the media has convinced you of, that thinking about whether or not there's going to be a war with Syria actually is important. Paying attention, knowing what's going on, keeping your head above water, taking a look over once in a while, sure. But how much you pay attention will not change the outcome. It's my take. By Jack Spierko. Hey folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But of course, you know me, I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, I'd like to introduce our special guest at this time, Pat Watson, also known as Pat the Leo on TSP. Hey, Pat, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Jack. Really happy to be here, man. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on, too. I kind of gave people your basic bio, but could you kind of talk about it from a personal standpoint, how you got to where you are in life? Take us back to, like, I don't know, study hall in 11th or 12th grade, and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, you know, and uh, the, the, the moment you're not checking out the girl next year or whatever, and you, you're actually thinking about what you want to do, and how does that lead you down to where you're at now? Uh, perfect. Um, this one's kind of two separate roads. Um, one of them would be how I ended up in the military and law enforcement, and uh, that might, I mean, I could talk about that for hours, so that might be a, a topic for another time, but um, my great-grandfather was a U.S. Marshal, my grandfather was a Army Ranger and Special Forces, and I'm pretty sure did some work for uh, an agency, and my dad was a 30-year cop. So we'll switch now to the how did I end up doing the website and the lockpicking and the survival course. Um, 
that one's kind of fun. Uh, one of the earliest memories I have is my old man came back from a, I guess, an officer survival school. And when your dad's a policeman, it's kind of, I mean, that wasn't always the talk of the town like that. That wasn't what we, <clears throat> what we talked about at dinner every night. But occasionally he'd get a little loose and tell some stories that were a little exciting or, um, or you know, had some bad language in it. And those were always, it was fun just to be around and listen. So one of the earliest ones I remember is he comes home from training and says, oh, yeah, well, uh, if we're going to put bad guys behind bars and, you know, handcuff them and put them in a cell, then our instructors said that, you know, in order for us to be better with our survival, we should know what they're thinking and know how that feels. And they're, they kind of taught us how to break out of that so that we can prevent it. And I thought, oh, my God, some little a little nugget of information just went in on my brain and it never came out. And uh, right then and there, he's like, all right, well, here's my handcuffs. So we put the handcuffs on me behind my back. And he's like, well, they said, uh, you know, first for us to hide a handcuff key so that at least we had the concept mentally of people might be hiding keys. And then they searched us. And, you know, he said, I put my key, uh, you know, in my cheek or under my tongue. And then, uh, you know, me and my buddies, we all got searched. And then they put us in a jail cell and they locked the door and they shut the lights off. And uh, he said, the first thing I did was I took my hands from behind my back and I slipped them under my butt and I got my hands in front of me so it was easier to work. And I tell that to people all the time now that I work with that are law enforcement or military, and they go, oh, my God, I didn't know you can do that. And, I, I mean, that's – it's it's so – one of the reasons I do the website now, it's so sad that there is a huge knowledge gap and a huge training gap where agencies don't teach people the limitations of their gear, um, as well as for, this, um, for the prepper audience, too. I mean, if you live in an apartment building in the U.S., there's a maybe 50 or 60 percent chance I can get through your front door with two paper clips. And I got to bend them a little bit, but um, those little nuggets of information stuck with me as a kid. And then I saw here and there, I saw the old credit card in the door trick where we'd come home and the door would be locked. And my old man's like, well, don't tell anybody about this, but pull a credit card out of his wallet and shim his way through the door and we're home. So I saw all of that at a very young age. And then I wanted to be in law enforcement. And I wanted to be in the military. And I actually spent... Uh, a little over 10 years. I'm still act, I'm still active right now, but my contract should end within about 30 days with the U.S. Coast Guard. And uh, I didn't know anything about it before I joined. Um, I did some research. I talked to some people. And, I mean, just that experience alone, I could talk for hours and hours. But long story short, I did some stuff I never thought I would do. I did some – I mean, I've spent more than 60 or 70 percent of my time in the Coast Guard overseas. And a lot of people don't know that we do that. So I put my bare hands on about uh, 40 or 50 metric tons of cocaine that I seized. Um, I put my bare hands on about 45 different Somali pirates that we captured during the um, kind of when the Captain Phillips movie was going on. So we spent a lot of time overseas, a lot of time in foreign countries. Uh, that led me to take my skill set to another level. So I was worried about capture overseas because that did happen occasionally. And I, I did attend one professional course on this besides the training that I got myself or through the Internet or through other friends that were in the service that had picked up skills. And uh, on my recent deployment with the military, I got a law enforcement job after the Coast Guard. I left active duty. So I got my law enforcement job. I've been on the street as a patrol officer for about three years. I recently got whisked away to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, for a one-year deployment with the Coast Guard, and this is the last of it. Now, let's, so, let's, let me pause you right there. So did that happen because, like, was it like an, an individual ready reserve thing or a general reserve thing? Because like no, when I got out of the army, I I was done. I had an option to go and do either guard or reserve service. But 
I was under uh, IRR, which is if you join, you're in eight years whether you believe you are or not, <laughs> right? And then all this stuff started up with uh, with, with uh, like when Black Hawk Down and all that stuff happened, and there was rumors of things going, and it was I was really oh, nervous. Boy. I was going to get called back in. Not because I was any kind of badass or anything, but simply because my MOS was like 60% under strength. So there was only, my, my MOS was only filled to 40% capacity army wide. Uh, and if trucks don't roll, then you can't go, right? So I was like, for like a year going, oh man, I, I have a life now. And, 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 you know, I talked to a local contact. He said, yeah, I mean, if, if this picks up, you'd be one of the first to go back in. And I'm like, Tell them I'm a fat guy now. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> or were you active reservist? I mean, how did that I, happen? It's, it's kind of a strange path. Um, I did six years full-time active duty, and 90% of that was at a drug enforcement unit that was a Tier 1 operations. I mean, we were super tough. We were super deployable. Our bags were packed by the door 365 days a year. Sometimes I'd come home from a deployment, and I'd take my clothes out of my bag and put them in the washer, and before they came out of the dryer – My team leader would call and say, "Hey, pack your shit. We're going to uh, we're going overseas again." So that was six years full time active duty. I left completely. I said, "I'm never doing this again." I have, I have so many skill sets. I'm so smart. Oh, this is going to be so great. And then uh, about five or six law enforcement agencies turned me down, and I was like, "You have got to be kidding me!" <laughs> so, uh, and that's that's a topic. Uh, I actually mentor people now that are trying to get hired. Um, so if you want to contact me, if any of the listeners are interested in that, that's fine. And I have almost 100% success rating with mentoring people on how to pass their oral boards and, you know, what to expect for their testing and their, and their application packets. So I said, well, I need some beer money for the weekend. So I'll get back in the reserves. I won't deploy. I'll, you know, I'll drive to the base once a month. It'll be easy. And, uh, they said, Hey, welcome to the reserves. Uh, get ready. because in a couple of months we're deploying for a year. And I was like, you again, come on. <laughs> so, uh, and right about that time I was like, well, at least I have some beer money. Then a, uh, a local law enforcement agency called that had my packet, and they said, hey, guess what? You're hired. And I'm like, oh, God. This, I mean, that's yeah. good news, but now I got, I'm got i juggling here, and it was just a mess. So this was actually the most stressful year of my life this last year. So I am very happy to be home. And uh, I, I've been listening to the Survival Podcast the whole time, and I got to tell you, while I was in Guantanamo, I worked the night shift the whole time. And uh, the Zello community was just fantastic. Um, I loved it. They were a big help in uh, helping keep me sane out there. Well, I appreciate that, man. Let, let's talk about what you're doing now. So you're, now you're, you, you know, you're, you're back home. You're you're uh, a local law enforcement uh, mm -hmm. on patrol, and, and you're doing this website uh, under a pen name because mm -hmm. well, some of your opinions may not completely jive with what the state yeah, even, thinks, right? Even if I don't say anything illegal or outside of policy. That doesn't mean that there won't be repercussions. Yeah, I, I get that. But so, <laughs> so you're taking a risk with this anyway. Um, but by doing it under pending, you're pretty safe because even if they figure out at you, it's like, well, it's not you because I'm not doing it as me, right? So yeah. you can't possibly be representing the department or law enforcement as a whole or whatever because you're not your, your pseudonym. So but what made you decide you wanted to do this thing with your website in the first place? Uh, first off, which you say all the time on the show um, – I just I love to teach. That has been my knack since grade school and high school and the military and even in law enforcement now. I love teaching. And the Internet is just a, such a great way to take a knowledge base and transmit that to millions of people. So I love that. Um, I'm also struggling a little bit as an anarchist, as a law enforcement officer and in the military. And uh, 
this is my first step towards financial independence and kind of doing my own thing. And I eventually want to phase out of law enforcement work and just be just do my own thing. Uh, another one is there's a huge gap in government training. So I'm trying to fill that gap. The things that I teach, I have never seen any agency teach ever. I mean, besides, I mean, the FBI has some lockpicking stuff, and I'm sure the CIA does some counter-detention stuff. Absolutely. But those aren't agencies that most people work for when you think law enforcement. Uh, and the last one is I did attend one professional school in this realm. It was an urban survival school. And I wasn't prepared to do my own thing at that point, and I wanted a little more street cred. I wanted a little more field testing. Uh, but the instructor was just a loser, and I paid a lot of good money, and so did my friends that were in the course. I paid a lot of money and took a lot of time off work to go to this course, and it was it was just embarrassing. I mean, the instructor was he was lazy, he was out of shape, he he didn't have a resume to teach this, and if he did, he didn't tell us. Um, I mean, there was one point where he, he was sitting right next to his slideshow with a projector, and he had a laser pointer, which he could have stuck his arm out and pointed at the screen. But he was using a laser pointer, and it broke. So he stopped class. He's looking at this laser pointer, and he's like, "Oh, let me uh, <laughs> let me try the let me try the batteries." And I, I stood it's up. the like, parsley batteries in my car. What do you want? Let's do it. It's the parsley thing with the chicken soup. I'm always talking oh about. Like one thing derails, and the whole thing's gone. You know, like here's a recipe for chicken soup. It calls for parsley. I don't have parsley. Just make so the fucking soup. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you're really not a guy thinking on your feet, which you should be in this business, I would think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there, that was the defining moment. I had known that I wanted to do it, but at that moment, it was kind of like when I picked my boots up and I pulled them tight and I was like, you know what? If this loser can do it and I'm paying him this much money and this is all <laughs> I'm getting, I'm like, that's it. From now on, my efforts are 100%. I'm doing this. I'm doing it for myself and I'm doing it to help people and I will... I promised myself right there, I said, I will never charge as much as this man charged, and I will always provide much more content and much more skills to my students. Awesome, man. Awesome. I, I think that's great, and I, I think there's a lot of people that get into this world of teaching, of doing workshops, of doing whatever, that come to it from that. I remember listening to Gary Vaynerchuk one day say, basically, that when he got into all the speaking and doing the podcast and all, he was—he just kind of looked at everybody that was out there doing it in the space he wanted to be in, and went, "I can do that shit better than them," you know. And like that was the whole thing. And like he, then he thought, like, "Well, then shut up and go do it," instead of bitching about it. And I think that, like, there was part of me that, like, that's how I started this podcast. Like, I was listening to AM radio, going, "This is all bullshit." Yeah, I can do yep. better than this, you know. And I was—I was listening to shows like Dave Ramsey and going, "This guy's got like four million national listeners. He says the same damn thing every day." There's nothing unique about one show. It's not bad. It's just the same thing. Like there has to be more than this that people would be interested in. So I, I think what we find with that is you might not end it with four million people because you don't have you know control of mainstream airways and stuff like that. But there's so much desire and there's so much long tail out there. I think anybody that really is committed and gets good at something can have success with it. So I think that's awesome, man. Uh, and a quick side note for that. One is a plug for Five Minutes with Jack. I don't know if you're on. I talk about it all the time when I email you for the show. Um, I can't tell you how many times I listen to that whole series from beginning to end. And I guess a little later in the show, I'm going to give you an example of how that helped me big time. Uh, but number two is uh, the title of my website is uncensoredtactical.com. And I call it that. One is because I use a pen name, so I'm not censored by my careers, so I can say what I want. And two is... I know that this is a show that families listen to and people listen to at work. So I, 
I say a lot of bad words when I teach, and I say a lot of inappropriate adult jokes when I teach, and some people think that's unprofessional, but it's, it's amazing how well information sticks when I teach that way. I just I bring it down to a low level, and I make it humorous and enjoyable, uh, but I'm able to tone down that language for this show and not lose my identity, so I'm going to try and keep my, my language a little more... Well, you know how um, this works. We, we, we stay within the bounds of almost, yeah. almost network television, but not quite... So, and, and I say that too. Like I might say shit or ass or something like that. But if your kids are watching Friends, they're 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 hearing things that are far more um, actually obscene <laughs> than they will hear here because I might use a four or three letter word on occasion. You know, um, yep. so be free with that. But like we pretty much don't drop the f bomb, and then I don't do the GD thing because some people are I, I, it doesn't bother me, but some people are really offended by it. So I. I kind of take that into consideration. One of my few bits of consideration for people being offended. Because uh, <laughs> awesome. I love that comedian that says, you know what happens as a British guy? Do you know what happens when you're offended? Nothing. That's what happens. Anyway, <laughs> a lot of your content is about lockpicking. How did that come about? Uh, that was because I, I, mean, I grew up super-duper blindly patriotic. Uh, my mom and dad were both in government jobs. And uh, my grandpa, both, I mean, both my grandpas were service members in, in the big wars. And uh, this, especially this lockpicking content, is huge for the law enforcement com community. And that's what I wanted to be a part of, and that's who I wanted to teach. Um, being an anarchist, I'm more than happy to, scare all, uh, to share all my skill sets with the civilian, uh, you know, <clears throat> the civilian audience. Uh, but, I, I mean, I love puzzles. I've seen these little tricks and, and techniques growing up. And probably, I guess, the top answer I have for you on that one is why is my content that way? It's when I show people, it's almost, it's like magic. And when I take this skill set and I, it's in my hands in front of me and I give, uh, I give a bunch of people, I was at the fall workshop uh, for the listeners. It was awesome. And a bunch of the people that were there, I took it upon myself to kind of teach a class outside of, you know, our working time. And I would take a little padlock and two little lock picks and I would give someone a 30 second crash course which I also have an article like that uh, on my site. So I say, okay, you put this tool in, you put that tool in, and you shake it around, and that's about it. And I have a 100% success rating with getting people to pick their own locks within five minutes, their own lock for the first time with their first tools ever. Uh, and it's it's just so amazing because, one, it's a, it's an event that you don't think is possible, and it rips that illusion of security, that rips that veil right down. And it kind of, it's a, I always tell people it's like a, a step down the rabbit hole or it's taking the red pill or the blue pill, like in the Matrix. I mean, once you see that most security is an illusion, it just opens people's eyes up. And I think that in this community, that is, that's a huge that's a huge topic, and it's an easy way for me to do it, to say, your front door, not so much, watch this. A padlock, <laughs> not so much. And with cops, I, I show them all the time. People I work with that, that are on my squad, like I'll be bored one night and we, we'll be low on calls, and I'll say, hey, let me just show you something real quick for your security. I put them in handcuffs, and I take a little bobby pin out of my hair. Not that I wear them in my hair, but I prep it for the demonstration. Yeah. So I take out a little bobby pin, and I go, one, two, great, you're out. And they look at me, and they're like, uh, I don't understand. So <laughs> lockpicking, is, it's, it's a really good tool for me to teach uh, the civilians and the, and the operators about security. Uh, but it also, because it's so effective and because it's like magic and it drops that veil of security, it also allows me to get on my soapbox a little bit and talk a little bit about my anarchy, and talk a little bit about libertarianism, and say, hey, uh, you know, if we're going to break into someone's house, maybe we should be really careful about not using it the wrong way, or not overdoing it. Yeah. And if we have an option to kick the door down, 
and then they got to pay for it. Well, now you have another tool that we don't got to screw these people out of a door frame. Yeah. So yeah. Especially that's, since that's we might be wrong, and when we get in, we might find nothing, and then we're protected by the veil of the state from the, the yeah. property damage we did because we had reasonable suspicion. That's that's a very good point, and one I've never really thought about before. I know it did open my eyes when when Brian Black first started up ITS Tactical, mm-hmm. um, just to support him. I bought stuff that he was bringing into his store, and I bought a set of his his uh, Bogota lock picks, mm-hmm. and I had really never jacked with it before. And I'm like, I don't have time to watch his videos and shit, but I watched like one for like a couple seconds just on how to use the rake and the tension, the tension, uh-huh. right? So I get the tensioner and I put it on the lock and I lock the door that goes into my garage so I can get back in by coming in the front door. So I lock myself in the garage uh, and I put it in the, the, you know, first I'm just using the doorknob one, not the deadbolt. So I put the, the rake in there. I raked it about like three times and it just turned. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, and these are like Schlage, like high-end Schlage locks. They're not like yeah. Joe Spooty locks. So I'm like, oh, bullshit. So I call the wife over, and I'm like, I'm going to go in the garage, lock me in there, turn the deadbolt, you know? So the, the hit the doorknob again, three rakes, boom, it opens up. Deadbolt took a little bit more, but it turned, and I just walked in the door, and she's like, holy crap. She's like, well, what are those? I said, they're just these little lock picks. She goes, well, how long did it take you to learn how to do that? I said, I don't even think I know how to do it yet. <laughs> <laughs> because like then uh, about a month later and Brian's really big into this too and I had lost the key for the lock that held the the pindle hitch on my truck and that's yeah, a little that. bit different small frame lock with security like these cross things and all and I'm like I call Brian up and I go dude do you have anything to cut that pin because I don't think a sawzall is going to do it he goes I'll come up there and pick it I'm like, I tried that. He goes, no, I'll come out there and pick it. So he comes up, and it took him about <laughs> 20 minutes, but he was able to pick that little barrel lock. And I'm like, we should video this. He goes, I don't know how long it's going to take. So he does it, and, I, and I, like, I'm like, okay, well, well, you did it, so why don't we just like video it? And he's like, no, I'll lock it again. I'm like, don't lock it again. He's like, I'll lock it again. The second time he did it, it took him like two minutes because it was yeah. a lot more feeling around in there. But it did open my eyes to like, You can always get through just about any lock. I mean, part of that, I think, is also, like, it does open minds. And like you said, we don't have to kick a door in or anything. But I've also always believed, like, okay, well, the lock is only as secure as the door it's attached to. And a lot of doors, you can kick them straight in. So it didn't really make me realize that somebody could get in my house if they wanted to. It made me realize that somebody could get in my house if they wanted to without me knowing they did it. Oh, that's And that is that is a lot bigger of a threat because... I remember watching this show about like the most successful cat burglars of all time. It was on one of the daytime, like it, it wasn't Oprah, but it was something like that. And this uh-huh. dude they had on it was one of these guys were like for for basically giving all the information. The cops cut his sentence, and like he helps them figure out things now. And he he robbed houses like the Kellogg family from Kellogg cereals. And what he would do, he'd break in a house during the day, go in the master bedroom because that's where all the good shit is, lock the door, and start going yeah. through shit. And then just go out the window. And if somebody, he'd do it while people were home. And if, you know, if dad comes to the door and the bedroom door is locked, the first thing, what does he do? He blames the wife. So while they're fighting about who locked the door and, and screwed it up, he's gone out the window. And he said the reason he got away with it for so long, he would find stuff in like jewelry box and all, really expensive jewelry that you could fence like immediately. But it might be something they wore once a year. So if they didn't go look for it for the next three weeks, they didn't even know it was gone. Mm-hmm. Or somebody doing surveillance on you. Like, if I want to surveil you, I don't want to kick your door in. 
Like, that was a big opener, eye-opener for me that you could get in and I wouldn't know you had done it. Oh, yeah. So, are you a locksmith? And if not, what's the difference between that and what you teach? Uh, I, I love fielding this question. Um, this is an issue between certified and non-certified. Now, I've done a, I haven't done a ton of research, but the, the minimal research I've done is that just what I call tactical lockpicking, um, I'm not a locksmith, and I don't pretend to be one ever. Uh, but for what I teach, there is no certification, and there is no national board or registry, which surprisingly is a good thing. It's a great thing. Um, I am not certified, and the good thing about that is there is no one over, which I hate about the military and law enforcement. They're training, like I said, huge gap in training. Uh, there is no one over my head that says, you will put a check in this box, you will put a check in that box, you will put a check in that box, and then you will graduate students. I hate that. Um, and I've also learned, I'm sure you've seen it too, in the military and in law enforcement too, it is so much easier. They, I mean, they call it learned helplessness. That's a whole other topic. Um, it is so much easier to pass a student that's terrible at what he does than it is to document it and you know send him through retraining and pay for it and schedule it and do all the logistics and to fail him eventually. So it's, I mean, people get promoted like that too. Um, it, it's it's really tough to fire someone from the military. It's really tough to fail them in training. So as long as you send someone to a certification school, for the most part they pass, and that says nothing about them. And another great example, I'm sure you'll like this one, you've got to know a lake somewhere, and I don't fish, but you've got to know a lake somewhere where there's some old dude that's never been to a fishing class in his life that he knows exactly where to go in that lake yeah. and exactly how to pick a fish out. And he's got no paperwork for it. And you can send some some dimwit to a national fishing school and say, you're a fishing teaching guy. Here's your certification. <laughs> and that doesn't say shit. Excuse my French. So, no. so no, I, I am not certified as a locksmith. And the other part of that, which is big for law enforcement and for, and for the preppers, too, is that I don't have a storefront that's a brick and mortar where I can say, hey, come bring me your broken lock and I'll use my millions of dollars worth of gear and machines and I'll pull out my reference books and I'll... Oh, plug a DVD into the DVD player to look inside your lock, and I'll use my camera. I, I don't have that option. I also don't have a huge van with key blanks and key cutting machines and hinges and nails and screws, and I don't have to repair people's door frames. So a ton of quote-unquote locksmith services I will never have to touch. So if you want to up your security as a prepper, don't waste your time going to locksmith school. Uh, and if you're in law enforcement or military, don't waste your time going to locksmith school because there is so much of that content that won't apply. And for the patrol officer, which which is, I mean, that's my meat and potatoes is patrol operations. Um, we, we can't carry that crap around. So I like to teach uh, kind of three lines of gear. Is my first line gear, which is what I've got in my pockets, or if I'm wearing a gun belt, it's just on my immediate gun belt. My second line is either like a go bag in my, in my trunk or like a body armor rig. And my third line is just heavy stuff like a battering ram or a sledgehammer or, uh, or you know bolt cutters that are in my trunk. And I, I mean, I have a ton of case studies for me myself that I've done in the field where I come across a lock and I'm like, oh man, I, uh, I need to get through this. Some of them are for my safety. Some of them for I had a great one that was a lady that had uh, taken some pills to commit suicide and she left a note on her door. So we show up and. I bang on the door and I'm like, you know, ma'am, it's, it's the police. Are you okay in there? And I can hear her real faintly. And my sergeant's there with me and he goes, 
all right, well, that's enough for me. We have authorization to kick the door in. She, she might be dead in there. And I'm like, well, I hear her. So here's the thing. If she's crawling towards that door and she changed her mind, which many people do, and we kick that door and her head's on the floor right next to it, that's not a great option. So I said, let me go get my bag of tricks. I'll be right back. And uh, we ended up getting into the room, uh, what they call surreptitiously or with low kinetic energy. We didn't kick the door in. And she was in there and we saved her. Um, so I don't remember what your question was, but hopefully that answered it. <laughs> no, was... no, I'm not certified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's um... a good thing. You, you recently taught your course. You call it an urban survival course. You also refer to it as an officer awareness course in Gitmo. How did that go? That was awesome. Um, I've been teaching this course. Uh, um, in, in Coast Guard, we call it collateral duties. So you have a main job, and then there's just stuff that you do on the side. I had been teaching this course for maybe five or six years to people in the military and people in law enforcement just as a part of my job just because we often share and we often do our own little training sessions in-house where we say, oh, I'm really good at Spanish. I'll give you a Spanish language class. And, oh, I'm really good at, you know, uh, engines. So when we, we do a hit on a boat and it's got an engine, you know, I can help update you. So I taught my class in that way. I said, hey, we all carry handcuffs. Maybe we should know what the limits of those are. So I've been teaching it for a long time, but with the help of the community and the show and the Zello channel, um, I was able to, I mean, this is where I'm, I'm going to talk about your five minutes with Jack. I am the guy that couldn't sell a bottle of water to a hitchhiker in the desert that was lost. I couldn't do it. And I listened over and over to five minutes with Jack. And I got my first student and I gave him the sales pitch. And I said, this is what I offer. And I was so nervous. And I said, here's the price. And then I shut up. And he said, Ah, tell me more. And I went, oh, I know what that is. That's a, uh, that's a phrase that Jack talks about. That's the, uh, I'm hooked phrase or the, I want to buy your thing phrase. It's a buying question. The buying question. So I was like, ah, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> and I was like, well, um, you know, I offer this, that, and the other. And here was my rough course pitch. Um, because it was a unique scenario and we were all deployed, we all lived in very close proximity to each other and we had a lot of downtime. I said, as my first student, here's what I can offer you. For your fee, I have about 8 to 12 topics that I cover for basic law enforcement uh, and, and civilian lockpicking skills and entries and self-defense issues and weapons handling and social engineering and electronic stuff. I said, these are all the things I cover. I cover each one for about an hour, and you get about 8 or 9 hours minimum of basics from me. You have access to all my tools, which is a couple thousand dollars worth of tools I brought with me on deployment just so I can practice and so I can teach others. And I said, you'll get that. You'll get one-on-one -on -one training. You'll get group training. You'll be part of a group that you can help each other train. I said, 24-7, um, if you get locked out of something, which did happen quite a bit, either I can come lock you out for free, and uh, if you're not part of the course, that will cost you. And then I said, uh, I'll give you all that training, and then after that, anytime you want access to me to work on any of those skills I taught you, I'm yours 24-7. As long as I'm awake and as long as we're off work, let's do it. And uh, one, per one person signed up, and it was actually because I went to his house to unlock something for him, and there were a bunch of people there. We were all drunk. And I said, oh, this is great. So they were like, they said, how are you going to get me in? And there's actually a video on my website. It's called the Underdoor Tool. So I, I had been speaking about my class for a little bit, but the real pitch was they were all, we were all hammered drunk, and one person locked himself out, and they had doorknobs that were like handles, kind of like, 90 degrees, like, 
They were parallel with the floor. So they were locked out and they were like, oh, how much is it going to cost to get me in? I'm like, well, it, it costs $10 for me to get you in. I said, or if you just want to sign up for my course tomorrow, we'll waive this fee. And they were like, well, what's your course? So I gave them the quick pitch and I was like, well, listen, do you want to get in there or not? They were like, yeah. So I was like, I'll be right back. So I stumbled back to my little hooch where I lived. I grabbed my underdoor tool. It's shaped like a big capital letter J. So I shoved it under the door. I pulled the latch from the other side, pushed the door open, and it was it was like a riot had gone off. They were like, oh, my God, that's awesome. <laughs> so right then and there, about five guys, they all w- reached out for their wallets, and they were like, how much is it? And uh, I got my first three or four students. Um, so that's my pitch. And then five minutes with Jack also helped. Because one time I was in the gym with one of my students and we were talking about the course. And I remember you saying something about firing customers and, uh, and, and about sales, about just waiting and, and, uh, and a bunch of other lessons I had floating around in my head. So I'm talking with a student and a third party walks up and he goes, hey, I heard you were uh, doing some teaching. And I said, yep, sure am. And he said, oh, well, what's, uh, what's the course about? And the guy was, he was kind of an ass. He was kind of an alpha male. Like, oh, I'm smarter than everyone. I was like, well, I, I teach this, that, and the other. And I said, I offer eight hours of content. I give you access to my tools. I show you where I get all my tools. I don't lie to you. I don't withhold information like some martial arts sensei. I give you everything I've got. And uh, he said, yeah, but can't you just learn that somewhere else? And I went, sure, you can't buy. <laughs> I went, that's exactly what I said. Yep, good luck. Yeah. I yep. said, if you're not interested, I'm not going to force you to pay for it. Yep. And I waited. I waited about three seconds and I looked at him. And I took one step away, and he went, "Well, well, well, well. Let me, uh, let me, let's talk." Yeah, it's it's so it's, be- it's the tr- the truth is the most powerful word in sales and marketing is no. Is no, yeah. It's no. Well, you have to sell this to me. No, I don't. You must sell it to me. Okay, I guess <laughs> if you really want it, but for you, it's going to cost more. And I mean, I sometimes I know I come off like a jerk with that, but the reality is. If you are serving more than you know two people, you have to divide up your time and resources in serving them. Uh, you only have so much time every day to serve your customer base and to make sure they get what you've promised them and th- things like that. When you're dealing with an asshole who monopolizes your time and he's either not going to spend money with you, spend an extremely small amount of money with you, or actually cost you more than they've spent with you, every second you're spending with that person you're not spending doing the support and, and maintenance and upkeep for the people that actually are good customers. So the yeah. best thing to do with them is cut them off like a tumor and discard them. Because that's what they are. They're a cancer, and they will eat your business from the inside. Um, another person that, that kind of followed that uh, was also Brian at ITS, and he like basically fired a customer that wanted to buy one of their like $300 bags. And she's like, I'm going to file a lawsuit. And I, they're like, I'm pretty sure you can't legally force us to sell you a bag. You're just, you're gone. Bye-bye. You're out of here. And it was like that, I think that helped them a lot too because it was done kind of publicly. So people were like, wow, like they're serious about this. Like they're going to take good care of us, but they're not going to deal with people that are, you know, irrational. And I know it's counterintuitive, especially for new entrepreneurs, but man, you you know, you got to do it. You keep mentioning it, so I'll throw out there. The the website that you can get this podcast that I did like 120-some episodes of, is jackspearco.com. The site's all jacked up. I've not had time to fix it, but you can still get all of the podcasts, and I think it's in iTunes too. And uh, I do plan at some point getting them all thrown into the MSV and like zip files, like we do the old episodes. And uh, you know, if if you guys are liking what you're hearing about that, check it out because I mean, I don't monetize it or anything, but um, it was basically everything I had up to a point on on how to build a business. So 
Thanks for mentioning it because I don't even think about it quite often, honestly. I got to tell you, it, it has helped tremendously. And I didn't know a thing about WordPress. I didn't know it. I had started an old website a long time ago, uh, maybe two years ago, when I was in law enforcement just getting in. And I did like one of those plug and play websites. And I was like, ah, I know Jack says you to WordPress, but let me just get my feet wet. And I did. And then I had a tough time, you know, doing email subscriptions. I had a tough time tracking my. Uh, my results, and uh, I said, you know what, let me just do this right. So I started on Sensor Tactical, and I'm doing my own thing, and I'm, I'm actually looking at my screen right now, my cPanel or my, uh, my, uh, what's the word, the dashboard. I'm in my dashboard right now, and just kind of cruising around. And I am, I have learned a ton, and that has been a big help. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, the thing with WordPress is, if you want your site to do something, somebody's already built a plugin that does that. And, and so most of them are free. Mm -hmm. Some of them cost money, but you know, when even if it's a plugin, it's like a $50 plugin. To hire a coder to make your website do with that $50 plugin would cost you a thousand dollars, right? And because it's open source, and developers can develop things and sell the $50 plugin to a thousand people and make $50,000 off it, they don't have to charge one person $5,000 to do it, and it just works out better for everybody. So yeah, I'm big on that too. Um, Let's go back to you, though. What are some of the most common questions you get about what you teach? Uh, usually my icebreaker is, is some lock picking. I also teach you know, some weapons disarm, some martial arts stuff, um, and I do a lot of reaching out to the community. And I, I like to explain what's happening behind the scenes in law enforcement and military operations. I think, it, and that's one of the missions of my website, is if more people knew what we really did, There, there would be an outcry. They would lose their minds. Or it also helps you understand why we do some of the things we do, whether good, bad, or indifferent. But like I said earlier, my icebreaker is lockpicking. Um, and the, every single, almost every time without fail, the first question is, oh, well, can you pick this? Or can you pick that? Or I got a car. Can you pick? Yep, I can do that too. I got a filing cabinet. Yeah, I can do that too. What about the locks that have the squiggle? I could probably get those too. So then, I mean, that's a great icebreaker for sales too. I say, well, Uh, why don't you swing by later? I'll show you some of my tools, and I'll, you know, we can talk some more. Um, but that's the first question I get. And the answer is usually it depends. A lot of times, because everything is so cookie-cutter in this nation, uh, a lot of times the answer is absolutely yes, I can pick that. Sometimes the answer is it depends, sure. um, especially if they don't have a lot of details. Uh, another question I get a lot is, well, is it legal to, to have those? And I tell people always, For the most part, you're probably okay, but that depends too. I think uh, I'm going to mention a website here. It's t o o o l dot us. They have a map of the U.S., which is by state, and they show you kind of which states they divide their lockpick laws into. Um, I think there's two two states. One of them is New Jersey, and the other one I can't remember. Um, but lockpicks are they call it evidence of a crime. So even if you have them and you're not doing anything with them, it's illegal. Most of the states in the union, you can carry them, you can have them. Most cops won't know what they are. Um, and if you get if you get stopped by the police, it's not likely that they're going to go into your wallet or your glove box and look at those and go, ha, got you, because they don't know a lot of the laws either, and especially something very, something real specific like that. I mean, we, I got to do an article on that too and just show you the the amount of paperwork we're required to enforce. So the the legal book that we use on patrol. I mean, it could be a freaking a doorstop for an oak door. It's huge, and we, we don't remember all that crap. We deal with people that hurt people, people that steal stuff, and uh, that's about it. So they won't probably know either if they stop you and talk to you about it. Uh, but I do have a quick article on my on my website for the legalities of lockpicking. T-O-O-O-L dot U-S is a great site, too. They have that map of the U.S. 
Um, and then I also get another question about, can I bring this through TSA? I have no idea why. I scratch my brain all the time. They always ask me, is it legal? Can you pick this or that? And then they say, can I bring it on an airplane? <laughs> I, I've looked at the TSA website a number of times. There's nothing on there that, that prohibits that. Um, I can also tell you that I've gone through TSA a number of times. And off the top of my head, I think someone may have asked me about that, uh, a TSA agent, but it must have been a long time ago. I'm having a hard time remembering. But I think the conversation went something like this. Oh, is that your wallet? Yep. Oh, what are those things in there? Lockpicks. Oh, are you allowed to have those? And I said, I'm in the military. And they went, okay, have a nice day. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> they don't have a clue. They got no idea. They have no clue. And that doesn't matter anyway because it's that's not the TSA's business as far as I'm concerned because no. you're not going to hijack an aircraft with a lockpick. <laughs> yeah, I got my I got my tension wrench. You better take this plane to Cuba right now. Yeah, you're going to get your head kicked in. I did pull up that map. The only state that I see that lockpicks are just absolutely illegal, believe it or not, is Tennessee. Hmm. And I, I, when you said Jersey, I was like, well, of course, everything's illegal in Jersey. But no, they're com they're completely legal. Um, they're the 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 different levels are they're just legal by statute. In other words, it says. The state says they're legal, but they, to, to do anything about it, they have to prove criminal intent. So there's a big misunderstanding here in Texas. That let's say you're caught doing something and the, the state says it's illegal, and you have lockpicks yeah. on you. It's a second charge. Yep. No. No. They have to prove that those, those picks were in some way usable in what you were doing. So if you punched a, 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 a convenience store clerk over an argument about how much change you got, it could be simple assault, but they can't add a second charge. If you were actively trying to figure out how to get into the convenience store when it was closed and you had picks on you, now it's a second charge. So it, it's, it's, it's not as cut and dry. I do think there are some states where it is that way, though. Like, you break any law and you have picks on you, then they could say there was intent to do further crime. So I, I, I don't really know how that works out, but... Don't go around doing stupid things in stupid places with well, stupid people. And you, you, won't, Jack. you won't have a problem, right? The, the famous words of Frank Sharp Jr. But Tennessee, they're just flat out illegal. That that dumbfounds me. But Tennessee is weird. It's like one of the really free states, and then it has these stupid laws that don't make any sense. Yep. And I guess my other thing is, well, what is a lockpick? That is a good question because I know there's one federal law that lists lockpicks, the only one I found. There's actually two of them, and they're, they parallel each other. And, I mean, they're almost word for word. And they say, you cannot send a lockpick or a lock-opening device through the mail, which is ridiculous. Because people do it all has, the time. It has no teeth. There's no enforcement mechanism. And I, I Googled the heck out of it to find any case law on that. Yeah. And I can't find a single issue of anyone ever having that. Well, let's just any enforcement lock. Picks for sale. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. We have 1.14 million results, and it looks like there's all kinds of stuff we yeah. can buy. Zip guns and everything, you know? So I couldn't tell you. I mean, if worst case scenario, if I send some paper clips in the mail and I show you to bend them a certain way, you got yourself a lockpick. Yeah. So that's a tough one to answer. Well, and I've seen like the credit card ones that you punch the picks out whenever you need to use them. Yeah. Um, And I've seen some marked like computer repair tools or something like that, like you know, because you can get into a computer case with them and stuff like that. Or 
I mean, if you think about the fact that like some of the tools that we use for maintenance on our guns, mm-hmm. the little things that are like dental picks and stuff, make pretty good lock picks. So that's what I'm saying. Like even if you live in a state where it's it's iffy, there's things you can carry that can be used as lock picks that. If they said, well, what is this? Well, this is a gun cleaning implement, or this is for maintenance on my computer, or whatever. If they actually traced it back to its source, and what is the intent of this device, it is, you know, they would never be able to improve that the intent of the device was to be a lockpick. Tennessee. Just a pretty design. Tennessee, get into the modern world. Jeez. For a state with no income tax, my God. Um, <laughs> so what do you think the biggest benefit would be to maybe not law enforcement, but the prepper community as a whole in taking your course? Absolutely. Uh, that's why I'm here. Um, and I, I'm thinking maybe sometime next month um, I have some some admin issues I have to take care of out in Texas, and I know a lot of your the people that showed up at the workshop were there. So I'm probably going to be doing a course out in Texas next month. Uh, why for the prepper community? Uh, this is this is a big turning point for me for being an anarchist. I I do not want to hoard all this information for law enforcement and military, and it has tons of application for the survival and preparedness community. Uh, the first one is if you have access to your lock picks, but you're locked out of something, you no longer have to wait for if it's an openable lock. Of course, I'm, I mean I'm not going to teach you how to crack safes. I don't know how to do that, or I don't I don't care to. Um, but if you're locked out of a vehicle, which happens a lot, or your car. And maybe your car keys are in the car, but you have some secondary options in your wallet, which I always keep as my first-line gear. So I have sort of a, a master key for almost any vehicle on the road that's in my wallet. So if I lock my car keys in the car, as a prepper and as a you know survivalist and someone that's prepared to handle issues and think on their feet and not get stuck and stranded, I wanted to write, do some write-ins for the vehicle lockout show or the vehicle. Um, uh, what was the show you just did? The vehicle. Diver vehicle. Yeah. yeah. I have some really good videos on my YouTube channel about some vehicle MacGyver stuff. I wasn't able to get to you in time, though. So you no longer have to wait and spend your time waiting for a locksmith to come get you into your car or your house. And you also no longer have to pay them to get into your car or your house. And I try and I try and keep my course at, at the lowest possible price I can and give you the most out of it. So depending on how many people attend the course and how far I have to travel, almost With one or two lockouts for you or a loved one, you've almost made your money back. Because depending on the time of night and your location, if you have to call a locksmith, sometimes that's 60, 80, 100 bucks on the spot for them to show up just like I did. They show up and they go, click, all right, you're in, pay me. So you don't have to waste your time or your money paying for a locksmith. So now you're, you're servicing your own needs, you're servicing your own issues. Um, another one is self-sufficiency. Okay, that led into a great self-sufficiency. You don't have to rely on other people for you to fix your own problems. That's pretty easy. Um, another one for the prepper community is the illusion of security. So when you take the course, I show you a ton of different things, and I try and be real varied with my approach. I do a little bit about digital uh, locks. I do a little bit about uh, codes and passwords and then you know, hard security like padlocks and door locks. So once you see how easy it is to break that security, well, excuse me, um, There's a couple really easy, really inexpensive hacks that you can do for your home and for your business and your car. You can really up your own security if you're worried about issues like that. Um, so like, I, like, like I've been saying the whole show, we're just going to rip that veil of security right off. And it's, it's skills that you don't easily forget. A little, bit of it, a little bit of it is perishable as time goes on. But if you have the right pick set and you have the right lock, it's what I call an openable lock, with enough time you can get it open. So your training kind of bumps those numbers up a little bit and increases your speed in opening. 
but I have beginners pick, you know, locks that are difficult for me all the time. So you're more self-sufficient. You understand the illusion of security. Time and money is huge that you're saving. Uh, and also, this one might be a little outside the box, but you make yourself more marketable at your job. So for me, I mean, for those in law enforcement and military, that's a really cool skill set to have. And specifically, uh, my lieutenant locked himself out of his office one night, and I hadn't had my underdoor tool yet. So I, I got a, a coat hanger from my car and a shoelace from my gym shoes, and I said, watch this, lieutenant. Reached under, pulled his door handle from the reverse side, and got him in. So let's say tomorrow, after I do that, me and another squad mate on my police squad, we go to the lieutenant, and we both say, hey, we want to go to this training school. And he's looking at both of us, and he goes, you or you? Because we only got one seat. You, 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 okay, which one? And I just got him into his office because he looked like an idiot and locked his keys in. Well, <laughs> that's a little bit of job security for me. And even I have friends that call me that have taken the course, and uh, they work at, like, restaurants now. They left the military. I had a friend that worked for uh, the Carabas, the Italian restaurant, and he said, uh, his manager locked the wine box closed one night, and a manager's running around like a chicken with its head cut off, and he's like, "Who's got bolt cutters? Who's got bolt cutters?" Like, no one has, no one has bolt, bolt cutters, cutters here. What's wrong with you? Carabas or whatever. Yeah. So he goes, uh, "Hey boss, you got uh, paper clips?" He's like, well, "Yeah, of course I do." He goes, "I got this." So instead of using bolt cutters or ripping the display open, casually walks up, he unfolds his little paper clips, and it's like a two-dollar lock. Click, click, click. He goes, "There you go." So when someone needs to get laid off or fired tomorrow, and you just did that for your boss and helped him not look like an idiot, that makes you a little more marketable as your job. Um, and last, which is probably the most important, you're helping yourself, and you're helping yourself be prepared and overcome obstacles, and you're helping your neighbors and your community. Um, I often, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty common in an open community to have your neighbors, not, not common like every day, but I've had people that I'm driving home from work and I get out of my police car, and I see my next-door neighbor standing outside her house, and she's like, can I use your phone, please? I'm like, wait, let me guess. What for? She's like, well, I'm locked out. And I went, I've seen you before. I know you live here. <laughs> I know you're not breaking in. I said, let me help you. I said, do you, do you mind if I get you into your front door with, with my tools? She's like, no, that's fine. So that is a, a huge bump in your uh, uh, your community capital. I guess Social capital, different. man. Social yeah. capital, yeah. That's huge for your community. And uh, I, I mean, that's what that's what this is all about. You prepare yourself, you prepare your community, you make yourself more marketable. So those are some of the big reasons why I would take it. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, can you tell us about some other times maybe you use your skill sets in the field? Um, absolutely. I mean, I use them all. I I actually take case studies and I, I write them down and I take photos if I, if I'm able to after each uh, lock in that I do. Uh, one of the good ones I have, there's an article on my website that says it, so I'll breeze through it, and if you want some, some good pictures, uh, that will help kind of show you what I'm talking about here. Um, in one of the places that I frequented in either the military or law enforcement, I, we oftentimes work with different government groups, and one of them that I worked with often was a hospital. So I'm standing outside the hospital, and I had access to the building, and it was the emergency room entrance, which is only supposed to be utilized by the staff and by law enforcement. So I know I have access, and I know that other people that work with me, they know the code, but I didn't know it at the time. So I actually, I look at the code box, and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. I know it's a four-digit code just because 90% of code boxes, I mean, most of them are either four digits or a three-digit and an enter key or four digits and an enter key. 
So I'm standing out there, and if you look at the picture on my website, that'll really help um, <laughs> identify this for you. But it was a rubber touchpad, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then star zero pound. And then four of the buttons, like it was a black uh, rubber push button keypad, and there were white numbers written on it. Yeah, and four of the buttons <laughs> were wiped right off. Yeah, because they had never changed it, and greasy, bloody, slimy people had touched it over and over and over. And I'm like, no, you've got to be kidding. So you don't know the number, but you know the four numbers. And this one happened to be, if you if you look at the website and you take a guess, you might just figure it out anyways, but this one happened to be one, two, it was three buttons and a star key. Oh. And there were three numbers wiped off, top to bottom, with a star key. So I'm like, oh, let me, let me <laughs> just try it. And I went top to bottom, one blank number, one blank number, one blank number, star key, and the door's open wide open. And I'm like, oh, man. That's that's really something, guys. Uh, you know what? I want to put a pop culture reference in here that I'll have to do post production. So let's just give a pause for a second so I can find it, and some of All the right. audience members know what's coming. No, wait, wait! I'll tell. I'll tell. I knew it would work. All right, give it to me. The combination is one. One, one, two, 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 three, 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 four, 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 five, five, five. So the combination is one, two, three, four, five. That's the stupidest combination I ever heard in my life. That's the kind of thing an idiot would have on his luggage. Thank you, Your Highness. Well, did it work? Where's the key? It worked, sir. We have the combination. Great. What's the combination? One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Yes. That's amazing. I've got the same combination on my luggage. <laughs> Prepare Spaceball One for immediate departure. Yes, sir. And change the combination on my luggage. Ah! So, so of course, that was from uh, Spaceballs uh, there, Pat. What do, you, what do you think of that? Is that kind of like what was going on there? Uh, I am familiar with that, and I'll give you one short plug, which is I was in a very secure facility um, sometime within my career, and it was like it was one of those ones that has signs on the outside and says "super secure, no entrance, no cell phones, video <laughs> recorded," and the code was one two three four, no star, no pound, nothing. And I, I just I shake my head. They gave me a personal pin code to use, and before I used it the first time, I said just for shits and giggles, let me try this one two three four. Boom, we're in. <laughs> So I'll finish this case study for you. Um, the next step was, I call it the, uh, well, there's two things that are going to happen at the same time. One is called, it's a rule that I that I kind of teach by. It's called same lock, same building, same code, same key rule. Um, and the other one that's going to play at the same time is a two-step rule. So I'm in there, and I'm supposed to be watching somebody, and I'm sitting outside of this little emergency room, and right next to me is the staff lounge. So I'm looking at the keypad. And I'm looking at the numbers again. I'm like, you can't do this trick twice. Come on. So there's no numbers wiped off. So a nurse walks by me, and she touches her key card to the to the reader, and the door opens. I'm like, oh, that's why the numbers aren't rubbed off. It's just a key, key card. I'm like, but I bet you there's a code, too. Yeah. So before I, before I try the same code that worked on the outside, I stand up, and I look around, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, two-step rule applies. And I read this in... I, I, <clears throat> I don't know if some people in the audience are going to giggle or not, but I read this in a Navy SEAL book, uh, gosh, maybe a decade ago. And he said, and this was his, I think it was Richard Marchinko was the author. 
And he said, people are so lazy that even when they use security, they do it to a lazy level. So if you have a key for your filing cabinet, it's probably within arm's reach of the filing cabinet. You don't want to go down the hall and go up the stairs to get your key. You put it somewhere but nearby. And that applies with written down passwords and everything too. So I'm, I'm thinking of that and I teach people that. And I stand up and I look around and I see a cork board with where people can hang like announcements on it and whatnot. And that's right next to the lounge, the staff lounge with the locked keypad door, security door. So I look at it and I'm like, could it be on here? Really? Could it? And then I, I actually have some pictures of this too. It's, it's funny. I have some pictures of that on my website. So I lean in towards the court board. And I'm like, no. And I look up at the corner and I see this little pen mark. And on the outside border of this court board, I see the same code that worked for the outside written in pen on the court board. So I guess if you lose your key fob, you, everyone knows. Oh, right. That's where the, that's where the uh, combination's written at. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, that's the same one as the outside. So I reach over, I look at the box and I go one, two, three, star. Oh, it opened. So that's a two step rule. And that's the, same building, same door, same key, same code rule. So a lot of times, I mean, the military and law enforcement, they love this. The government loves using the same code for multiple entry points. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, uh, so I use a little bit of social engineering, which I teach. Um, long story short, that is manipulating people. And I do my best to be absolutely legal and absolutely ethical, and I don't do it to trick innocent people into being bad guys. I, w- I would never, ever... Um, but I do do it for my information. I do do it to make bad guys admit that they're bad guys. And uh, I go up and I talk to the nurse at the nurse's station, and I see there's a five-button push-button code box, and it's all mechanical. There's no digital to it. Um, and if you've ever been in a government building, you've probably seen one. So I look at her, and I'm like, all right, let me let me. There's a rule in social engineering. I don't know the official term that the social engineers have coined it, but I call it the tit for tat rule. So monkey see, monkey do, I tell you, you tell me, kind of kind of that game. So I look at her and I go, oh, I, I point at the lock and I go, we got a bunch of those at the department. And I go, yeah. I, you're gonna, and I lean in, I go, you're going to laugh, but we haven't changed our codes in years. And I said, and it's like, it's really simple. It's like three, two, one, and you turn the handle. So I say nothing. And I look at her and I smile and I look at the key code and I look at her and I look at the door and I look at her and, and she kind of gets a little nervous and she's like, Oh yeah, ours is, you know, two, three, four, and you open the handle. And I'm like, there it is. <laughs> so, so I look at her and I'm like, well, that probably wouldn't have been very hard to guess because there's another principle here where anything with a keypad, if you get on Google and you can see the manufacturer of the lock or the keypad and you can see the model number, if you Google that, you might, might take you a minute, but you can pull up the manufacturer's uh, printout for instructions for installation. So for that specific lock we were looking at, the code she had told me was the uh, the factory reset code. So they what they did is they installed it, and the instructions said, okay, try this code first just to make sure it works. And they put the code in, and they went, okay, now change it. And they didn't change it. So that was actually just their factory install code, so she hadn't really given me much. But that's another principle I teach is if you know if it's a lock with a digit code, um, a lot of times you can look up the instructions, and it'll tell you black and white what the what the code is. So that is one of my case studies that covers a ton of different topics for principles that I teach. Very interesting, man. And it makes me think of a much you know kind of simplified thing. When I used to uh, do a lot of the trade shows and stuff like that, and they would always want to sell you Internet access, right, while you're there. Mm-hmm. So you could have Wi-Fi in your booth. 
And a lot of the bigger companies that would do these trade shows, you know, they'd have $20,000 into their booth or something like that. So they'd have their own network set up. And I, w I would never pay for Wi-Fi access because I would just go in there and pull up my machine and just look at all, of, all the networks that were in there. And I just start going on one by one with user, admin, password, password, user, admin, oh, yeah. password. And inevitably, within about three or four tries, I would hit somebody's network where the, the username was admin and the password was password. And if I went through them all, you know what I would do next. I would go username, admin, password, password, one, two, three, four. Right? Yep. And then I, there was almost never a show that I ever ended up having to actually pay for access because I would always just piggyback somebody's network for, for Internet. And it was just to bring up the company website or whatever. It wasn't like we were you know, doing something really nefarious, but we were just piggybacking on our Wi-Fi because, well, your password's stupid. You know, I mean, that's it, it's ridiculous how simple that is. And I... You know, that's 10 years ago, so maybe maybe people are better about it today, but something tells me they're not. Uh, you can you can Google most frequently used, um, what do they call it? internet passwords or uh, site passwords, computer passwords. And I did that for my course in Gitmo. Is, um, the plan was to do an escape room at the end where I take all the skills and stack them all together and run the students through a high-stress scenario where they utilize every skill. And one of them was, okay, you're... You're hooded, you're handcuffed, and you and your partner are stuck in a back room. So you get out of the handcuffs, and you help each other, and you rip the duct tape, and there's a keypad, and there's a computer system. So use this simulated computer system to access the Internet and call for help. And I said, okay, before this course starts, I want you to go online and write out a couple password ideas. And everyone Googled you know, most common passwords. And, you know, there was a punishment reward system where I said, okay, type in a password and let me see it. So they type in admin one two three four or you know user one two three four or just one two three four five six so they had maybe five or six in their heads and if they got it wrong they did a couple push-ups and they jumped back up if they got it right they got out of the room and moved on to the next stage so yeah you can still google that stuff and from what i saw last year 2015 20 i saw a 2015 chart that was still it was just terrible one two three four five six six five four three two one Password with a capital P and an at sign and two dollar signs. So yeah, it's, I don't think it's getting much better. Lord Helmet, the password is one, two, three, four, <laughs> five. I mean, that's, that's it's a, it's a, that's the kind of password an idiot has on his luggage. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can rock. The government still does that in very secure buildings. Well, I'll tell you one of the things you have to think about, and I don't mean this as disrespect to you or anybody else that works for the government, but. Let's say you're a government employee and you're good at your job and your intelligence and you, and you can think for yourself. Well, you know very well that you're a minority. So people have to go through these things every day that aren't necessarily the sharpest knife in the drawer, so they keep it simple for the lowest level of competence. It's like I'm sure the Coast Guard did the same thing with running that the Army did. You, row at, you run at the speed of the slowest man in the formation, right? So it's kind of the I'm same familiar. thing. Huh? I'm familiar with that. Yep. Yeah. So, like, that's what they're doing. They're 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 operating at the intellectual capacity of the lowest member of the of the group, which in some cases is well, kind of low. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's make a shift here toward the end, because you know I've got a, a law enforcement officer on the show, and I don't get to do this a lot. Can you talk about maybe some general experiences from your military and law enforcement work that will help our audience? Absolutely, and I would love to do it. And actually, at the workshop, um, I was very happy. As soon as I got there for the, the spring, what season are we in? God, I've been away so long. Um, for the workshop you just put on, I was very happy to tell everybody, this is me, this is what I do. If you have any questions about it, 
I will, as long as it doesn't violate any security issues, I'll give you full disclosure about my law enforcement and military stuff that I deal with. Um, and I can tell you, it's in spite of our training and in spite of our commands, we still sometimes accomplish good things, but it is very rare. I mean, most of my job is not helping people, and I wish it was, which that's a reason that I'm leaving. So first and foremost, I go to a number of scenes where they say, dialed 911 because of a burglary. So I punch the gas pedal, and I'm cruising over there, and I'm like, let's get the bad guys. Let's do it. And I show up, and the, there's a family standing outside in the driveway. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they go, well, about a week or two ago, we were broken into. I, I lose my mind. I'm like, oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I stay professional. On the inside, I'm freaking out. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. If something bad happens, call 911. If you think something bad is happening, call, and I know it probably sounds so silly, but call 911. And if it's not bad and it might be a crime or, or it might not, or if it's a weird dude walking around in your neighborhood at 2 a.m., call 911. Yeah. Worst case scenario, we're not going to arrest you for making a mistake. I promise. Worst case scenario, we get out there. We go, hey, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I work night shift, and I usually jog at night. And we get his info, and we talk to him, and then we go our separate ways, and everyone's happy. So please, if you think, I mean, you are the eyes and ears. Very little in law enforcement happens without someone, without a citizen calling and telling us about it so that we can help. So when in doubt, go ahead and push those buttons, 911, hit send, and we'll help you out. Um, another one is, I have an art, I just did a ride along with a, a buddy of mine that works in Texas. And I've always gone on ride-alongs since I was a kid, like in my dad's police car or when my buddies started getting hired in places. And there is a ton that the prepper community can learn from just sitting in a police car with somebody all night. And <clears throat> the first statement I'm going to make is this is not a pro-law enforcement tactic. This is not um, – I mean, I mean, there's I – am, I am not blindly patriotic. And whether you like police or don't like police, you can still learn a ton that can help you in your preparedness. Uh, and here's an example. Um, uh, I know recently there was a show, maybe three or four months ago, uh, when someone said, oh, I don't know about calling 911 and going to the hospital, and we had a family member with a specific medical issue, and we didn't know which hospital to go to, and we didn't know which ones the EMTs would take them to. You can solve that all in one night. So if you do, if you do a ride-along with a police officer, you are, especially in a big city, you are almost, almost guaranteed to see a medical case connection. So EMTs will show up, law enforcement will show up, and then you can ask anybody anything you want. And you can say, hey, uh, how do you know which hospital they're going to? And even if the officer doesn't know, he'll say, oh, go ask EMTs. I don't know. You say, hey, you know, I'm doing a ride along. Uh, what can you tell me about your, your hospital selection? Or I have a family member with this. What would you recommend? So it's a great opportunity so that you don't have to do research. You don't have to pull files. You don't have to request files from the police department or from the the county clerk, you just go in and you say, hey, you do this job. Can you tell me about my personal situation? And it's great. Um, another example is if you have some pet peeves like, hey, one, this is one of my favorites. I always see these cops sitting under that oak tree in the middle of the day and they're not doing anything. And while that might be true, I, I, I promise you I am not here to defend any law enforcement officer at all. I've been in that situation, and I know that some of them are probably old and crotchety and are probably trying to nap, and that's terrible, and they need to be fired. I know that some of them are probably being lazy, sure, 
but I know that a large amount of them, when you're sitting in your car and you're in a big wide open parking lot or an open space with a light in the middle, there's a good, I mean, for every 60 seconds of work we do, I know I personally do about 30 to 60 minutes of paperwork and I hate it, but I, I have to get to a place that's safe. I'd rather be out in the community writing my report, even if I'm under a tree or if I'm in a, if I'm in a parking lot at night. I would much rather be out in the community writing a report than do my work, head back to the, you know, the agency I work for, sit at a desk, lock myself in a room, listen to the AC, and type on the computer there. Well, so, and I, here, I look at that this way, too. So first of all, if you're sitting somewhere, you're a deterrent to actual criminals. There's a, a little car. bit, yeah. There's a, I mean, at, at Christmas time in, in uh, Mansfield, there's a mall where people like speed by this place, and there's like three entrances to the highway, and there's all kinds of wrecks there, and there haven't been for ten years because they take this old beat up cop car that they don't use anymore. They tow the damn thing there and sit it there, and it stopped yeah. all the wrecks and all the cutoffs and everything else because oh, there's a cop there. So, so like there's a deterrent value. So if you're doing paperwork, I'd rather you do it somewhere where you're deterring actual people that like. I have a sh sheriff's deputy that does it at the little old church parking lot like a, a third of a mile from my house, right? Well, then I know that while he's sitting there, somebody's probably not going to break onto my property because mm -hmm. there's Or if they do, right he's right there. Then the other thing is you say they're lazy and all. Let's assume that you're on duty and you're not in a big city where something's always going on and nobody's mm -hmm. made any complaints. Well, I don't want you driving around looking for people to screw with. Mm -hmm. Sit there and wait till there's something to do. I'm fine with that. <laughs> Because I kind of look at it like government, you know, like the Congress, when they say they're going to shut down the government. Okay. You guys doing nothing? I'm totally freaking cool with that. So, I mean, I look at, like, police what, we're, when we're dealing with a state, and we're not going to have a stateless society in our lifetimes, despite what you and I would like to see. Police are a necessary evil on some levels and a necessary good on some levels. Like, I've had cops help me out in, in numerous situations, and I appreciate that. I've also had officers lie to me in situations where there's no need for it, so I have a distrust. Um, but I, that doesn't mean that I look at everybody that's doing the job and say, oh, you suck. I mean, that's just, that's just asinine. We're all human beings. So if you want to sit under a tree and do nothing when no one's being robbed or shot or murdered or raped or kidnapped, okay, that's great. I wish you all would do that. I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> <laughs> I got um I don't know how much time I got left, but I got one gem that if I don't share with this audience, I'm I'm gonna regret it. This one is an immediate fix that people in this community can do to update their security at their home, okay. and they might have no clue. Um, I I love this one. Um, let me walk you through what actually happens. If anyone has an alarm system, I would really start perking up right now. Or if you don't, you might want to get one, but pay attention. Um, this is what actually happens when alarms go off. I work in a fairly busy area, and we probably field uh, anywhere from 20 to 100 alarm calls a night. And, and that's just in the one little area that I work. So, I mean, citywide, countywide, statewide, depend, it depends. There's a ton of them, and they are very commonplace. One of the things that kills, I mean, it kills police and military and even civilians is complacency. And I have to admit, I occasionally am guilty of it. And in this story, I'm going to give you full disclosure, I was guilty of it. So we had handled alarms. I mean, usually when it's slow, you'll get one alarm, and here's what happens. You pay an alarm company, and they lie to you. <laughs> and they show you, they show you a commercial, and they say, your window breaks, and a bad guy's there, and there's some professional person with a headset, and they say, the police are on their way. 
kind of, but I promise you they're lying. Here's what happens. Your alarm goes off. Seconds matter right now. If it's a real bad guy and they really want to hurt you and, you, and you're, you're in your home late at night, seconds matter. So there, as far as I know, most alarm systems, even if you set it for like a hard set, like we're in for the night, everything's good, we want that audible alarm, let's lock it up. There is a portion in time when they wait and they try and call you or they wait for you to put in a code in case it's an accident. So already those seconds are, they're not helping you. Let's say you don't put the code in and let's say it's not an accident. Well, now someone at a desk at 2 a.m. who's tired, who probably doesn't get paid very much, they pick up the phone and they look at your case and they look at their screen and it pops up. So already seconds, tick tock, tick tock. Then they call the number that's listed. And that goes over to either the sheriff's office or the local police, and they call their dispatch center. Well, a lot of people don't know this either. There's a lot of big cities or big counties have two people or two staffs in their dispatch center. So the first one is an emergency operator. And they say, do you need fire? Do you need police? Do you need medics? What would you like? So tick-tock, tick-tock. So while Hmm. they're talking, they say, oh, well, here's the address. And, uh, I got Miss Jones, and her alarm went off. Tick-tock, tick-tock, Miss Jones's alarm went off, and uh, she didn't put in her PIN code, so uh, can you send an officer? And they go, hold on. Tick-tock, tick-tock. They transfer you to another operator that is the police or the law enforcement dispatcher. So tick-tock, tick-tock again. They pick up their radio, and they go, I need an available officer, and that's if there's one available and if he's nearby. They go to respond to 123 Apple Lane. Uh, for an alarm. And you might not know this part either, but this is very important. <clears throat> alarm systems, when you look at them at your front door, your little access plate, um, if you ever open your back door, sometimes it'll say back door open. Sometimes it'll say zone one open. Sometimes it'll say zone B open. Um, and the good systems will say there's a glass break in this quadrant of the house. Well, I hear that on the radio because my dispatcher will tell me what the alarm people tell me. So they say, uh, there's a audible alarm and it's in zone B. So I get on the radio and I go, are you, I go, okay, where is zone B? (laughs) And the dispatcher goes, I don't know, stand by. And they call the alarm company back and then they call the dispatcher back and they say, uh, unit three, we don't know. And I go, okay, well, I'm on my way. Now, sometimes the alarm says panic alarm. And I, when that happens, we mash that gas pedal and we're moving and we're bringing everybody. Sometimes it says glass break. That is very rarely inaccurate. Almost any time you hear the words glass break on the radio where I, where I work, if it's an alarm and there's a glass break sensor, they're very accurate. And it said, when, I mean, when the alarm company calls the police, they go, there's glass breaking right now and it's really happening. So we get together and we're like, yes, we get to stop bad guys and we mm-hmm. go. But if your alarm says, uh, no exterior alarm, but the interior alarm is a motion detector in zone C. I, I hate to say it, but this is full disclosure and I love this community and I want you to get the help you need. I, I roll my eyes and so do my buddies. We go, oh God, here's what's, there's a cat in the house. They're on vacation. They said that the cat wouldn't set out the detector alarm, but it did. Okay. Well, and I've done this myself and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I'm going to tell you the truth. The recent story that I'm using to tell you this is I was sitting at a 7-Eleven with my buddies. It was 3 a.m. It was me and two other officers. And I got the alarm, and I said, okay, interior only, motion detector. There's no exterior glass break, no alarm, no panic. It's 3 a.m. 
And I went, great, I'm on my way. And I looked at my buddies and said, okay, let me finish this story really quick. And it's embarrassing, but Jack, that's that's what people do, and <laughs> I am big on full disclosure. So we make these decisions about economics where we go, how fast do we get there? Because we have to justify, can I speed through a neighborhood with this with this suspicion level? Can I use my lights and sirens? Is it reasonable? So sometimes that happens. So when I get there, and this this probably more than anything, I want the audience to listen to. You won't see my police car pull up in front of your house. I'm going to park three or four houses down. I'm going to quietly shut my car door, and I'm going to start sneaking up. So tick-tock, tick-tock. If bad things are happening, I have to protect myself, and I have to put myself in a position of advantage. So I'm slowly walking up to your house. I'm looking. I'm listening. I'll get near the front. I'll try and use cover. I'll put my ear up to your window because I'm not going to go straight to the front door and pound on it. I look for signs of entry, and I'm going to try and do a perimeter walk of your house before I even try and contact you. So that if there's bad guys in there, I catch them off guard, which is great. Now, that nugget I just told you about, that grand nugget of information, if you have a fence around your whole property, or even a lot of where I work, a lot of people have half fences where they start at like their garage and their side bedroom and they go around the back of the property. Sure. I am for a basic for a basic alarm call, I am not gonna jump your fence. And especially if your alarm says zone C. I'm not going to jump your fence, but if your alarm says backsliding glass door, so call your alarm company and see what you have registered on your systems and see if that will help us or not. Um, If I don't have to jump your fence, I'm not going to do it. And probably half of the alarms that I get, I can't go back there. It's an injury. (laughs) This is going to be funny, but uh, I heard a statistic once that most law enforcement officers that get line of duty injuries get them from jumping fences. Hmm. I know it's it's probably because some of us are fat and out of shape. I'm not, but... I hate. I still hate climbing fences. I got injured on one before. So if there's a lock on it, I'm not going to pick that lock to do an alarm check. I'm not going to. I'm not going to get my bolt cutters to do an alarm check. I'm not going to jump the fence to do an alarm check. So if I can't see your back door or your back windows, I'm not going to check them. So you, there could be a really bad dude in there trying to hurt you and your family, and I would have no clue. And my procedure, my policy says, I'm in the right. Now whether you agree with that or not, that's what's going to happen. So I want to prevent that. So. Be aware of, do you want to lock that fence? Do you want a high fence? Do you want a low fence? Do you want mesh on one area? Do you want wood on one area? Um, and the other part of that, which if you have that, this might really help. Call your alarm company and ask them if your phone number is on file and also ask them if they will release your phone number to the police. Because a lot of times I'll say, hey, dispatch, can you call the alarm company and have them give me the cell phone number for the owner of the house? And I've had my dispatch call me back and say, yeah, I made contact with the uh, alarm company, and they said, no, they won't give you the number. So, number one, call your company and fix that. Number two, think about how you want to set up your fencing. Number three, think about whether you want to put a padlock on that fence or not. And and I think you should, but you need to weigh the pros and cons. And another way to mitigate that risk is there's something called a key holder. Have you ever heard that term? Jack? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so a key holder for your audience would be your next door neighbor or a family member in town that has a physical key to your front door that is on file with your alarm company with a correct phone number that will release that info to law enforcement. So if I show up and I knock on the front door, I do a perimeter check, everything looks fine. My next question to my dispatcher is going to be, check with the alarm company, please, and see if they have a key holder that can come open the front door for me. So if there's a really bad dude in there and he's like, shh, 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 don't move, I'm going to murder you. Well, 
I, I don't have the probable cause to kick your front door in. So if you have a neighbor or a family member that has a key, they can show up and they can go, hey, here's the key, and they can come with us into the house and make sure we don't steal anything or break anything, and we can clear the house and we can say, no bad guys. Or we can say, oh, my God, we saved everybody. So those are some things you might really want to consider. I mean, that is that is behind the scenes, that is open and honest, what happens on something as simple as a basic alarm call. And most cops take that. They get so complacent because we deal with so many. And for the audience, I think that's something you might want to consider. And it's free. All you have to do is call the alarm company and double check. Or all you have to do is go to your box and get the instruction sheet out and say, okay, we're, not, we're going to change zone C to master bedroom window so that when I show up, I can go in my little earpiece in my ear. They say, oh, don't forget to double check that master bedroom window because that's where the alarm was. So that helps me help you. That's all. Gotcha, gotcha. Let's let's steer a little bit different here as we as we finish. I just want to ask you this question. You, you refer to yourself as an anarchist, and we we've been saying voluntarist on the show more recently because it it like makes people think a little bit more and makes them not write it off so quickly. But do it, you remember that show about uh, the military people calling in with the same crew two nights in a row? I was going to ask was was that you? That that was me. Yeah, in Guantanamo. So I mean, you <laughs> had the same conversation with the same people two nights different. Used voluntarist one day and. Anarchist the other day and got totally different results from the same people. It was like magic, yep. Yeah, so I mean, that wasn't where I was going, though. What I, what I really want to ask you is, so now you're a law enforcement officer. You're sent out to do things that you would prefer not to do. What no, is it like yeah, for the – because, I mean, some people would just say, he's not an anarchist. You shut up, shut up. Go go drive on the roads and tell me you're an anarchist then. Whatever, right? So Because we, we all do things to – make a living, etc., and we do it within our personal philosophies as best we can. What is it like to deal with that, though, to realize that there's times like, I really don't want to F with this guy, I really don't give a damn what this guy's doing because he's not hurting anybody, but I'm out here, I've got a partner with me, it's been seen, now I've got to take this guy to jail or something like that. What's that conflict like? Um, on some days, on most days, this job tears me apart. I thought that when I was a kid and I saw my dad wearing his uniform and I was in diapers and I'd run up and hug him and I was like, oh, your shirt's really itchy and that bag's really cold, but you're my dad, you're my hero. From that moment, I thought everything's black and white. I'm blindly patriotic. If you don't listen to the police, you're an idiot. Um, and I thought most of that for most of my whole life. And <laughs> you might not like this one, but it's meant in good fun. So you had a show once where you said, uh, something, I think something about debt, where you said, if anyone in my show pays off all their debt and then they regret it, you can come on my show and you can call me an idiot. And you can say, you know, I regret paying off my debt. You're an idiot, Jack. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember that. I do. So I can, I can tell you from listening to this show, I have been awakened. I'm an anarchist, libertarian, whatever you want to call it, voluntarist. And I can tell you it has wrecked my entire plan for my life. I was so much happy, happier being blindly patriotic and ignorant and thinking, if you break the law, there's a law. You should have read it. You should have known. You're bad. The police are good. I'm going to come arrest you. I no longer ever think anything near that. Um, I've written in a couple times, and I have the lowest arrest rate on my squad because there's a number of questions I ask before I arrest anybody. One is, did you hurt anybody? Two is, did you steal from anybody? Three is, is what I'm doing basically a tax collection for the king or for the state. And if all those questions start adding up and I'm like, yes, this is legitimate, I more than happily make my arrest. Sometimes that's not the case. Uh, specifically with 
I think Texas calls it family violence. Are you familiar yep. with that term? Yeah. So Domestic if you violence. have any type of intimate relationship with someone, whether it's brother, sister, mom, I don't mean intimate, like sex. I mean, yeah, I like got you. you're, you're a family unit, like you have lived together as children or you're roommates, but you kind of share everything. If you guys touch each other, and I mean like a punch or a kick or any type of physical touching, and I show up, I don't work in Texas, but I have a, my friend does, and he keeps me up to date. I work in Florida, and it's, it's the same issue. Police are almost like 99.9% required. There's a little bit of gray room, but almost entirely required to make an arrest of somebody. Those are the cases that, for the most part, really hurt me. A little bit. And I don't lose a ton of sleep over it, but um, one example is we had a sheriff's deputy who was off duty, and he was home for Christmas, and uh, I didn't work with him, but a friend of mine did. And my friend's telling me the story. He's like, yeah, one of the guys I work with was off for Christmas. And his he was at his mom and dad's house who were elderly. And mom birthed a turkey and, and the, you know, the kid said something, the kid who's a, who's a sheriff's deputy. And the dad, like, shoved him. And somehow the police got called. Okay. This is not uncommon, especially for the holidays when yeah. you get a bunch of people together. And, and I guess the arriving officer knew the family. And he knew that one of the people in the family was in law enforcement. He said, listen, I'm really sorry. He's like, but you have to go to jail tonight. He's like, no, I, I, nothing happened. It was a push. It was fine. Everyone's happy. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. We have, if I don't do this, I, I could lose my job. Now, there is a little bit of wiggle room, but things that things like that, they're starting to take away our discretion. But I'm going to be honest with you, Jack. I don't think it's as bad as sometimes people in this community make it. So keep that story and put it in your back pocket. When I operate, um, my old man told me this is one of the best jobs in the world. I'm, I have yet to see that, but hmm. I do like that my old man told me when I get in that squad car and I start my patrol, I am the CEO of that squad car, and I handle my business like I want to handle my business. And for the most part, I've seen that is true. I have had tons of cases that I've worked where at the end of the case I said, nobody's going to jail, no one's getting a ticket, no one's getting a warrant for their arrest. Everyone act like adults, apologize, go home, go your separate ways. I do that very often. I do see a trend that we're losing our discretion, but it's very slow. That doesn't mean it's wrong, but I still think it's wrong, but it's very slow. But we are losing a little bit of discretion. But the problem is it's so I, – I think this the underlying problem with, you know, anarchos and libertarians and, and law enforcement, <clears throat> it's that – uh. Gosh, I lost my place. Give me one second. No problem. It's that so many of them, government training won't solve it. And so many of them lack critical thinking. And nobody asks the questions, why am I arresting you? Is this law a legitimate law? Can I go with not arresting you? Can I write that in my report? Can I make it sound reasonable that I don't arrest you? And so many people get caught up in, I want to go to a special unit. I better get a lot of arrests. Or, I mean, I... I am the first one, everyone that's ever spent five minutes getting to know me, I'm sure you can see on this it's a one hour show too, but I am the first one to criticize law enforcement and leadership and bad government. I've been very lucky that when I first got to my squad in my agency, um, my sergeant and my lieutenant, they both said to me, we do not want you doing traffic enforcement unless it's urgent and someone's going to die. They said, we want you to be ready to rock all night long through the night shift 
in case something bad happens to someone else, we want you there. We don't want you writing tickets. We don't want you sending people to court. And I, when I heard that, my heart melted. I was like, oh, thank God. This, this is not terrible. I can, de- like, I can deal with this. This is good. So it's still out there. And, um, I mean, that's another reason I started the website, too. I am very happy to point out the terrible things that happen in both the military and law enforcement careers. But also, I'm happy to surprise you with some things that, I mean, you might want to consider aren't as bad as they seem. I think that's important because I think one of the problems that the, the, the libertarian, anarchist, voluntarist, you know, the whole group the community has on the civilian side, right, is that very often we see only the bad and therefore we, we, we forget the good because I've always tried to be fair. When I see a cop beating the shit out of somebody, right, like my first instinct is that he's an oath breaker, right? But then my, my next thing is, well, is the guy trying to kill him? Right, because if you're trying to kill me, I'm going to beat the shit out of you if you stop trying to kill me. Right, so I always yeah. try to take a fair, even-handed look at these these cases of supposed officer abuse, and unfortunately, I find a lot of them where I go, "This is just you, you, you can't do this." I don't care if you have a, a shiny badge, but then I, I find a lot of times that our community jumps the shit of an officer when you're going, you know what? Everything was by procedure. Everything was by 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 uh, you know legal you know was legal. And done to the standard, and then there's that's that to me that's a little bit of a gray area because there's a judgment in that, um, yeah. like should you have done it anyway? And and we can you know, but if I'm going to sit on a so then I, as a person I might say that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. But if you put me on a jury, then I'm not going to convict that officer because he followed his training, he followed the law, and he was reasonable under the conditions as set by his training. And then there is. Also, the co- times where maybe that's not what an officer is supposed to do. But but what if you? What if I was the cop and I wasn't a cop? You know, what if I was you know in that situation and someone did whatever they did to that officer to me? Might I, as a human being, simply say, you know what, dude, you're getting ass beating? And and the reality is, you guys are really at a higher standard there than I am, right? I mean, like because you're doing the job, and, and we have to have some understanding though that sometimes people. Sometimes people snap, and sometimes they snap at an asshole who who seriously deserves it. I mean, really. And then we have the officers that, like, you just look at the whole totality of it and go, that was just wrong, it should have never happened, it's the officer's fault, or it was outside of procedure. And unfortunately, I feel like many of the people in the liberty movement are so hungry to find those guys and point them out that they'll just take anything and make it that. And I think yeah. that hurts us because then we lose credibility with rational, sane thing, you know, people that we can pull out of statism because they go, well, you kind of left a bunch of things out, like that narrative of don't shoot hands up never happened. You know, I mean, that, that type of thing. It's a, if we're going to do it, we, we need to be honest. And I'm, I'm more than happy to point out bad policing. Nothing makes me happier than government at its worst when I can point it out. Uh, but if we're going to talk about that, if I meet you one-on-one and someone in the street walks up and says, hey, what do you think about that? More than happy to trash police work as long as you bring me all the facts and we look at them and we talk about them. Because I, you and I both know, and I'm sure most of the people in the audience, the media is not the most honest source of information. And they're really tricky in this world because one minute you look at them and you say, these guys think that cops crap golden eggs. Right, like oh, they just no seem way. to be the no, most protectionist, and then the next minute 
they're completely throwing law enforcement under the bus at the same and I don't mean like Fox News does it one way and MSM I mean the same media source does yeah. this with it doesn't seem to have any kind of even handedness because I do it I think with even handedness like this guy is just a piece of shit and then this guy over here that everybody and my own people are jumping I'm going wait a minute wait a minute you don't know the totality here like uh the guy that got uh that died in New York the, mm -hmm. the, the 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 I can't remember his name now yeah uh, the large large guy the guy that uh, chokehold yeah. yeah the chokehold so yeah. when I first heard that my view was this NYPD has a standard not to use a chokehold officer mm -hmm. uses a chokehold officer's wrong he's guilty of at least some level of manslaughter because he went outside procedure and it resulted in a death even if he didn't intend it right that was my initial thought but then okay well wait a minute in his training what is a chokehold And a chokehold, according to NYPD, is where you're doing restriction of the arteries and you're, you're cutting off the flow of blood to the brain, not putting somebody basically in a chin lock, which is what he did. So do I think you should go out and jack with a guy on the street for selling loose cigarettes? No. Why did he get jacked with? Because shopkeepers paying the tax wanted him yeah. to work with. That's, we, should, we should look at that, too. But then, so do I think you should do it? No. But if you put me on a grand jury and said, do we bring an indictment against this officer? No, because in the situation, he did follow procedure. I took a lot of flack for that. And it's like, I'm not saying that they're right. I'm saying that you're an officer, you're given an order, you have two choices, quit your job or, you know, carry out the order. And, and you have to make that decision every day. And going into that, I don't think that officer for a minute thought that he was going to kill that guy. I don't think for a minute he thought this was going to end in, in the guy's death. They simply wanted to put cuffs on him and take him to jail. And, and the guy resisted. Again, I can go back and say, we shouldn't be throwing people in jail for selling loose cigarettes. But, but this is the situation. And we have to judge that officer's actions based on who he was. And most of us that are anarchist, voluntarists, libertarians, we weren't always. And if we don't no. remember that then we get very, very fogged in our vision and our understanding, and then our ability to win people over gets very, very weak. I, uh, let me give you a quick, a quick note about policy, too. Um, I train all the younger guys, that are, even the older guys that have been there for a while. Anytime I get to train, I always tell people another gem of information. I say, listen, there's a difference between legal and illegal. There's a difference between that and policy. There's a difference between open and closed policy. There's a difference between if it's not in there, you know, open and closed. If it's not in there, we can do it. Or if it's not in there, we can't do it. So is that an option? And then does the policy make sense? Because in my career, both military and law enforcement, I've seen that this is a this is an epidemic where a training center will dictate how operations happen in the field when it should be the exact opposite. The field should say, hey, training center, this works, this doesn't. And here's a good example. I know that you're, I mean, you do, uh, you have some martial arts information and you've, you've done some training. So this might sound a little funny to you. My law enforcement agency that I work for, they told me directly, and they did it in our defensive tactics class. They said, if someone presents a knife to you, you will fall back on your butt and roll backwards and kick your little legs and wait and hope that you can keep them at bay. And then, you know, maybe once things work out, you can maybe pull your gun at that point and shoot them. Are you are you kidding me? That, that's what our policy says. And then we have a policy that says when I take out my ASP, my expandable baton, I can only hit you in one spot, and that's the little area in the back of your calf muscle. Well, how am I going to get there 
if you're fighting me, yeah. do I, I have to take a circle step around and duck my head down by your waist and your fists and take a little stab at your, your calf muscle? What's that? Are you kidding me? I can save you from getting shot. If you come at me with a knife and I have my baton out, I would more than happily break your hand and then put you in handcuffs and get you medical care and take you to the jail. Instead of you punching and kicking and hitting me and stabbing me while I try and hit you in the back of the leg with my little stick. So <laughs> policy is one thing, and then legal and illegal are another thing. So, like, uh, an officer was in a bad shoot. It was outside of policy. Well, did he do something to keep himself alive, even though it was out of policy? And was it illegal? Did he murder someone? Yeah. Or was it self-defense? And the only way that in the real world outside of that paperwork, it's the only way you can survive. And they tell you to do this takedown and that takedown. The worst is handcuffing. They tell you this long, drawn-out process of how to handcuff someone, 37 steps. And you get in the field and you go, okay, you're going to jail, turn around, give me your hands. That's it. So policy is an interesting beast. Yeah, I mean, and like on that, what I've always said is, okay, we have to understand that cops are forced into confrontations that you and I would not be forced into. So you have to say, I, I hate the, fighting people. It, well, I don't even mean that. I just mean like the initial contact. Right, yeah. like I could go up and do something that initiates a contact with somebody that I that when once the contact occurred, I was legitimately in fear for my life, so I killed them. But I would also be judged maybe on manslaughter because you had no right to instigate. You see what I'm saying? So we have yeah. to give cops a little bit of a pass on sometimes they instigate a confrontation because there's a suspicious person or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or and, and somebody, So they're going to start the contact where a civilian wouldn't. Once that happens, though, to, to, to be fair, you should say, if that was a civilian in that conflict who pulled a gun and shot the guy, was it a legitimate shoot? And I would think a lot of people would say, well, the only guy only had a gun and the cop shot him. Okay, but if you said, you know, a uh, homeowner walked out in his yard, found a guy there with a, with, a, with a knife, started talking to him. The guy came at him with a knife and he shot him. They'd say, well, the homeowner was right. Well, hold on, right? We have to judge these two people the same way then. And either someone coming at you with a knife is legitimate to shoot them or it's not. It's not, it's okay for me to do it, but it's not okay for you to do it because you're trained in wear a uniform. That's, that's, that's unfair in the opposite direction. And I, I'll tell you right now, if you come at me with a knife, I'm going to shoot the shit out of you. Oh, okay? yeah. I mean, I'm, we're not rolling around. I'm not getting cut. I'm not getting sliced <laughs> up. And you can 21-foot roll your ass off. I'm telling you, right, rolling back on your back is actually not a bad idea if you're drawing your gun while you're doing it. But move, get off the X, and start tapping holes in somebody. And anybody that wants to make the case that the, the, the knife is actually the superior weapon, just look at warfare. And look how fast the sword went away when gunpowder was invented. Right? So... We have to be fair if we're going to judge officers. I, I really believe that. And, you know, I appreciate you being with us today, Pat. I'm, I'm very happy. And I've been contributing to the community for a long time. I've been a listener since, gosh, maybe the 30s or 40s episodes. And I'm pretty sure my MSB is running out soon, so I'll go ahead and set that up. And I would love to come back for the next workshop you do. And i got some real big ideas. I just taught on the off time for the last one, but... I yeah, man, I'd like you to submit, you know, for you know, for a one-hour session. I'd love to have you do that. Um, I would like to give you a chance here. I know that cops occasionally see their fellow officers doing something they absolutely should not be doing, and I know it's got to be a hard thing to intervene. But what would you say to your brother law enforcement officers if they do see one of their fellow officers acting in a way that's inconsistent with what they're supposed to be doing? I, I think about that every day. And you know what? My old man, too, we, we disagree sometimes. Um, he's 
he thinks he's liberty oriented, but we have long talks that makes me <laughs> suspicious. But he says all the time, "Hey, you see that Rodney King bullshit?" He said, "You need to be the guy that when that's happening, you walk up and you stand your ground and you say, uh, uh-uh, we're done, and you stop that." And I'm like, "That sounds great. I could be that guy." And I can tell you, I. I don't know if anyone's going to believe this or not, but I mean this with my heart and soul. I have never seen anything in the in the three years I've been on the street and in the 10-plus years I've done federal law enforcement and military work and drug seizures and all that. I have never seen anything immoral happen in front of me. And if I've heard about it, it wasn't people that I knew. And I would be more than happy to spill the beans on anybody that did so. Um, it might It might be difficult emotionally or mentally, but... It's an amazing thing when a man of stature and, and confidence walks into a situation like that and grabs you by the shoulder and says, uh-uh, we're done. It takes one person, and that spreads like wildfire. So should that ever happen in front of me, I'll be the guy to make sure that doesn't happen. For two reasons. One, I don't want my friends getting arrested and going to jail as, as you know, terrible cops. Two, I don't care if you're a bad guy or not. That's That's the way this country was founded was... We're going to detain you, we're going to arrest you, we're going to put you in jail, and then you're going to see your trial. Okay, this is not going to be trial by manslaughter. We're not, it's not going to happen in front of me, that's for sure. Well, and I can, I can tell you that I, I do believe you because I know a lot of law enforcement people, and I only know of one who said, it, it, I, I should say this, I know enough law enforcement officers that I trust. That, that there's a significant number, and I've only had one say they saw something going on that shouldn't. And what this person told me was they intervened, and before it really got out of hand, and the guy looked pissed, the, the guy that he, he she shut down. Yeah. And he, he did this when he was a rookie, by the way. And then when everything's kind of cleaned up and everything's done and he's standing outside the scene, and the guy that he cut off is coming walking straight at him, kind of fucking fuming. And he said, I was thinking, all right, let's go. We're going to be two cops rolling around the ground fighting. But the guy walked up to him and basically thanked him. Yeah. He said, I was losing my head there. Thank you. And he said, you know, he's been on the job now. I think he's three years from retirement, to give you an idea of how long he's been on the job. He said it's the only time that something like that's happened in front of him. I, I don't know. I know that sometimes maybe, like this guy at, at one point, I think, was maybe a little bit more roped into it and more willing to go along and maybe maybe had seen something but didn't think it was wrong. But I think, at least in his judgment, he never saw anybody else do anything like illegal, immoral, etc. before. So I believe that happens. I've got one family member that's a law enforcement officer. He said the only reason he can even stick with what he's doing is he got put on a task force and he's working human trafficking now. Like So he's like, oh, yeah. anybody I take down, I don't give a damn if I'm throwing them into the states <laughs> machine or if I'm throwing them into uh, you know, a, a, a furnace because they deserve it. And I don't have to jack around with people for smoking a joint or something like that, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I think there's good guys doing the job. I, I, I can tell you're one of them. And I also kind of want to put it out to people this way. When people say, you know, no good person should go into law enforcement or no good person should join the military, oh, that would be great, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just be great if we had all assholes doing that? That, you know, oh, that didn't God. care, that just followed procedure without even thinking. Or do we need people that, that can, because it's, I can tell in your voice when I asked you the, the question that started this last segment, it's hard. It's hard to do it. You don't even want to do it for the, you know, for, you don't want retirement. You want out and you want to find a, a ramp out. But, man, we need people like you on the inside waking up because there's very few of you that will turn me on the first time, and if they happen to get into this subject, they're going to like what I have to say. But they'll listen to you 
at least with some level of consideration. So I appreciate you for you know being a force for good on the inside. Nothing makes me happier. All right, man. With that, Pat, thanks for being with us today. And we'll definitely have you back on and definitely fill out an app so we can get you as an instructor in the fall. Awesome. Happy to do so. So I, I think that was a great and informative interview. And um, I, I, I really enjoyed the frank discussion toward the end of today's show. And I, I, t I talked to Pat and asked him if he would be okay with me breaking out the segment when I asked him, you know, as an anarchist, et cetera, how, how is it when you have to deal with these things? And it kind of, you know, I choked him off for a second. And really some frank, honest discussion there. If it would be okay with him if I broke that out into a YouTube segment where I do sometimes, you know, just throw like the, the Val logo up and, and put it on YouTube so it can be shared individually without having to share the whole show. Uh, I'm going to do that. He was fine with it. And I, I really do appreciate the fact that we have good people in law enforcement doing good things. And I, I think the vast majority are good people. I think the minority are truly liberty-oriented, but I think the majority are good in their heart people. And uh, But what we need are more like, like, like Pat that will stand up and say what's wrong is wrong, uh, even when it comes from in their own, own uh, ranks. And I think more of that's happening. And I think that if we're ever going to heal the rift between the citizen and, and law enforcement, we need more frank discussions like this. And I think the agitator groups are ensuring that can't happen, and we need to, within our own community, make sure these conversations do happen. That, that's my thoughts on that. Anyway, if you like this show and the work I do, remember that you can always support us when you're doing your shopping on Amazon. Just go to uh, tspaz.com before you do your shopping on Amazon. T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. And when you do that, uh, you can uh, just take a look at our item of the day, or you can actually just go over to Amazon, throw something in the search bar, buy whatever you were going to buy anyway, and just by going to TSPAS first, you'll support us, and it won't cost you anything extra. I have a uh, Encore item today, one of the top 50 items from last year. I'm kind of bringing these back like one a week, uh, stuff that people really liked, and I never heard any complaints about. I, I love that. This is the uh, Audium Bluetooth FM transmitter, and it is a great little device I have in my F-350. Um, I have a very old-school stereo in my F-350, and it doesn't even really work, right? Like, it has a CD player that doesn't work. Yeah, like, like that. Like, this is a 2005 truck, and it was a construction model truck, so kind of the lowest end of the lowest end audio equipment, but... You know, I drive it a few times a week. I, I can't see spending $300 on a stereo system for it and having, you know, the people at Best Buy rip my uh, dashboard open and all that to get this done. And uh, I, a listener, because I've always said, if you have something you've bought on Amazon that you think our community would want to know about, send it to me and I'll check it out. Well, um, I, I got this one sent to me and I was like, I could use that because the two things I wanted to be able to do in my truck that I couldn't was one, I wanted to be able to make phone calls and, and just be hands-free and hear them over my speakers because I got really used to that with our new 4Runner. And uh, I was like, yeah, that, that's, that, that's what I want to be able to do. But the other thing I wanted to be able to do, of course you know, be able to play my music from things like Pandora or iTunes Radio or podcasts on my stereo in my car because, well, terrestrial radio basically sucks. So this thing was like 20 bucks at the time, so I'm like, 20 bucks is better than a few hundred. So I'll buy it. If I don't like it, I'll just send it back to Amazon. That's one of the things I love about Amazon. If something's wrong, you can just send it back. Um, so I get it. I plug it in. It just worked immediately. No problems. Easy to set up. And uh, I can listen to my my music and my podcast when I'm in my truck now. And I think that's totally worth $20. bucks. It's on sale today, and I don't know how long it'll stay there, for $16.99. 
Again, it's the Optima Bluetooth Wireless Radio Adapter Receiver. And it does a lot of other stuff. It's got an auxiliary port. You can put a, a, an SD card in it. Uh, it's, it's really awesome. And one of the little hacks for it that I've learned is that on the FM frequency in a big city like Dallas-Fort Worth, there's something on almost every channel. But you can find one or two from, you know, what is it, 84, 5 up to 108, whatever it is, um, that they have nothing on it, maybe a little static coming in, a little overplay coming in. So what you want to do, turn your handheld device all the way up. And the, the Bluetooth transmitter, uh, the FM transmitter, has a volume control on it. Turn it all the way up. And then use your stereo to control your sound. Uh, and, you know, bring it down to, to a more comfortable level. Because what that does is it, it basically booms the signal at a very high volume and it overtakes your surrounding frequencies. And with that, I think it's like 107.9 or something, 107.7. I think if you're in Dallas-Fort Worth, it's probably the best frequency to work with just in case you're in the area and you want to try this thing out. Anyway, older vehicles especially, this is really a great tool. Not for everyone, but you got that older vehicle and you just would like to modernize it a bit without putting hundreds into a stereo system or, you know, what have you. This thing's great and it works great. It plugs right into your 12 volt, uh, receptacle, your cigarette lighter receptacle. If, if you still use it for that purpose, I don't know many people that do. And, uh, it's got a little USB port on it. So you don't give up the charging port for your, your phone when you're in your vehicle. Check it out today, and remember, as always, you can support us just by doing your shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. No matter what you buy, you'll support us, and there's no jack surcharge. Another way you can support us is on Patreon. I'm not going to talk about this every day, but I did release uh, a video today for the higher-level support, $5-a-month support on Patreon, uh, which will which will give you an idea of what Walks with Jack will be like, and that will be for my Patreon supporters. This is really a YouTube thing more than a podcast thing, but I've done a couple things. One, I had a little bit of internal conflict. Like, how do I tell a person who's already paying me 50 bucks a year uh, or something like that in the MSB, if you want this extra content, it costs even more money? And I thought, well, it is extra content. I've been running the MSB, and people have been happy with it for eight years. Um, but maybe there's something we can do. So what I'm doing is anybody that joins Patreon at the $5 a month to get all the perks over there, I will send you a discount code that will give you MSB for $25 a year. So in the end, you'll be paying more, but I'm cutting your cost on the, on the other side of it. And I'm looking at doing a higher level support tier uh, with doing like a monthly, I've had a lot of people like, like monthly conference calls and stuff like that. I'm trying to come up with something really cool and I'm going to limit the number of it. It's probably going to be something like 25 bucks a month or something like that to make, like do, you know, a monthly call. Uh, cause if I do that with 50 people, not everybody's going to show up and people can all be heard and maybe it's an hour and a half call and we record them and Patreon members get access to the recording, something like that, sticking to like business subjects and, and, and content creation subjects and stuff like that for more of the entrepreneurial flared type. And if I do, if I do that, then what I'm going to say is if you're, uh, if you're doing that, then it just MSB's free to you. You know, unless you just want to pay for it. I mean, that's that's how we're going to do that if we go up to that level of tier. Might even go higher. I don't know. I need to kick some ideas around. But if you have ideas for what I can do on Patreon, I'd love to hear from you. If you are using Patreon, I'd love to hear from you because I want to help people monetize their content. I want as many people to get as much freedom as possible. On that note, I want to let you guys know formally right now as well, a little end of the show announcement, Charles, the humble mechanic, has joined our expert council to answer your questions on vehicles and, and, and mechanical work and dealing with dealerships and all that stuff. Um, so if you have questions about vehicles, now would be the time to get them in. 
TSPC expert in the subject line. Sell me your questions for Charles because I don't have any for Charles yet because I didn't you know, formally announce it yet. So I'm doing that now. And uh, on the note of monetizing your content and whatever, I just got a fabulous letter from Charles. I'm going to read it to you on Monday in full. But basically, this is his last week of working for somebody else. And I want more people in this community to walk that path. And that's why I'm kind of springboarding off onto this Patreon thing. I'm not abandoning MSB. I'm not going to keep at, you know, I'm not going to stop adding discounters. I'm not going to take away any benefits, etc. But I, I want to do something to have more success stories like Patrick Rorman and Empty Knives, like Charles the Humble Mechanic, you know, like Forgotten Weapons. I want more people to have what they want. And I am very committed to doing that. And I've tried to do it before, and I need some way to formalize it. And frankly, to give up the time to do it, I need some type of compensation. But I think we can do it in a way where everybody pays a little bit, and it's enough for me to go. Here, here's the thing you guys have to understand. If I do a 90-minute conference call, it's going to end up being two hours many times. Because when people are asking pertinent questions, I'm going to keep talking even though I shouldn't, even though I should cut it off. That's just me. The other thing is... Maybe the first one I might have, you know, 90 minutes to two hours into because it'll be basically we set it up, we do it, and that's it. And I upload the audio recording, and that's easy. That's that's so simple, it's not even real work. But the second one, I, I'm going to have, you know, six, eight hours into because all of the stuff that happened in the first one, I'm going to be taking notes, and I'm going to be figuring out how to come into the next one better. Uh, so that's probably coming exactly how much and when and how, I don't know, but I, I'd love your thoughts and ideas on that. Um, and, and things that you're doing that are working, if you're willing to share. And I think that would be the value of, of doing these too, because people that would do this would be people that are already, um, committed to building their own thing. And I think that you might learn as much from them as you learn from me. Maybe more when we combine it all together. We'll see. Anyway. On that, let's do our song. Oh, I wanted one more thing I'm doing for Patreon members. $3 and up uh, through the Patreon feed, which you need some sort of podcast uh, catcher thing to use the feed, but um, commercial-free versions of the show for all Patreon members, $3 and up. And I'm giving those guys $15 off MSB. So if you become a $3 supporter on Patreon, um, support all the work we do, not just TSP, uh, your MSB membership goes from $50 a year to $35. If you're getting a military discount, um, I will add it to that. If you have a sale price where you've already got a lower price, I'm not adding it to that. That's just, I, I can't do that. All right. Anyway, song of the day today is a song by one of my favorite guys, even though he annoys the hell out of me. Uh, John Cougar. No, John Mellencamp. No, John Cougar Mellencamp. No, John Mellencamp, don't call me Cougar. Cougar, John, what, you know, like this guy just has an identity crisis and can't decide what to call himself. Now, one of my first... Uh, audio tapes that I ever bought was American Fool by John Cougar. So he's freaking John Cougar to me, even though he did this song under the name John Mellencamp. And I, I loved American Fool. I loved the entire, not just Jackie and Diane and Heard So Good. I loved that entire album. That, that got me into the concept of, hey, if I get a dual cassette deck, I can make copies of tapes and sell them to my friends, and in a couple weeks, I can pay for the dual cassette deck, and then, yeah, entrepreneurial spirit runs high in, in me. Um, but he came out with an album in this year, of course, the year of the episode 1987, and the album was called The Lonesome Jubilee, and it, it had a lot of... A lot of different things going on, and it was a pretty ambitious album, and it did fairly well for him. But the song that we have for today, again, is called Paper and Fire, and it is 
It's another psalm with 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 racism built into it. It's uh, it was it was designed to show the the, the the disparity between the poor and the rich in America, and it it drugged the racial issue into it. And it it focused. It was done in Savannah, Georgia. It focused on the South and Appalachia that area. If you watch the video, uh, it, it's pretty obvious where it's going from. And again, it's one of those things where it is about racism because the guy that wrote the song says so. Right, so that's what it is. But I would like you to think about it maybe a little bit broader, uh, because my belief is if you want to show poor ass people in Appalachia, they don't have to be black. I can show you some poor ass white people in Appalachia. I can show you poor ass people all around the world of every race and religion and creed. Uh, in fact, most of the people in the world are poor that live outside. You know, because most of the people in the in the world live outside of you know the true first world. So there's poverty everywhere. But I don't even want to take it from a standpoint of just poverty. I want to just take a look at the first stanza and say, well, instead of bitching about the problem, how do we actually fix the problem? And the opening stanza is, she had a dream, and boy, it was a good one. So she chased after her dream with much desire. But when she, got, when she gets too close to her expectations, well, the dream burned up like paper and fire. And what John's talking about here is that when we go after things, a lot of times we believe that we can, and then some sort of thing shuts us down. In this case, you know, a person's looking for a job or whatever, and they don't get it because they're black. Okay, well, I, I admit that we still have some vestiges of that problem, and I'll tell you flat out, the problem, as I've said many times, of a child of the 80s was bigger in the 70s than it was in the 80s, and bigger in the 80s than it was in the 90s. And I think today that you can do anything that you want, and I think you could have then too, but there were more obstacles. But my point when I, we listen to this song is I want to point out that there's always obstacles. There's always some asshole that won't give you a break. There's always some person who doesn't like you because of the way you look or sound or talk. And that doesn't mean just because you're, you're black. It could be because you're white and speak with a lisp. It could be because you're white and you have a voice that's somewhat effeminate and the person's a homophobe and they don't like gay people. And even though you're not gay, they assume that you're gay. It could be because your truck broke down today. It could be because you don't know enough yet to succeed in what you're trying to succeed in. But there's always obstacles. And dreams do burn up like paper and fire. And the reason they burn up like paper and fire is because they're dreams instead of plans. The way we fix this problem is we stop teaching people to dream about what they want and we teach them how to have the attitude and the fortitude and the courage to develop the knowledge and the skills to get what they want. That's what I want you to take away from this today. It's easy to dream. And it's easy to blame somebody else for not achieving your dream. A dream is an important step, but it is a first step. The realization of the dream requires work, and not just physical work. Emotional, spiritual, courageous work. And to get a dream to come true, learn this, requires failure. One cannot succeed in any dream without multiple failures along the way. And if your dream burns up like paper and fire, it's because you gave up too soon. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Yeah. 